Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 204 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Beautiful Mind, an interview with Margot Gunning. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. After doing 203 podcasts, I thought that I had probably heard about every single treatment protocol that someone would consider using, and boy, was I wrong. This is a young woman who introduced us to a number of different concepts that no one else has ever introduced to this podcast. Rich, as you noted, this podcast was special for so many reasons. Margot talked to us about the importance of starting the right way when treating Lyme disease. She had to start light and then build her way up to more aggressive treatment, so she didn't overdo it at first. She also talked to us about specific treatment protocols and how they were helpful for her and how they could be helpful for other people. She also specifically talked to us about things like ketamine and microdosing to help combat the psychological components of Lyme disease and rewire the brain. This is a must-listen-to podcast. So Matt, I agree it is a must listen to. And what's even more beautiful about this young woman's mind is not only does she have the ability to understand very difficult and complex concepts, but she is brilliant at the way that she articulates in a very understandable framework how each of these frameworks will work for you on your healing journey. So Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce the beautiful mind of Margot Gunning to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Margot Gunning, and welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. And we're excited to have you. So Margo, where are you from? San Diego, California. So you're you're a West Coast gal? I am, through and uh, through. Uh, were you born and bred in California or have you been from other parts of the country? I was born and raised in San Diego, uh, moved away to Denver, Colorado for a bit, and then moved to Orange County for a bit. And now I am back here in San Diego healing. So talk to us about what it was like to grow up in San Diego. It was, it was simple for the most part. Um, the weather obviously is beautiful. (laughs) It's what everyone pays for. Um, I grew up with my mom. My parents are divorced. They're, um, they're separated when I was young and we grew up, um, the beach area, Pacific beach, uh, for those of you that are familiar with the San Diego area. And, it was simple. I went to school, um, really had no, no health complications at that age. Um, and life was, life was very simple. All right. So simple and outdoorsy and enjoyable yeah. for, for the most part. So what was the educational system like? Is the uh, school system in San Diego a good school system? It is. I think different areas are hit and miss just like everywhere. Um, I went to Waldorf. So for those of you that are kind of familiar with the Montessori system, um, it's kind of similar to that from my understanding of what they, what they teach. Um, and so very like hands-on, a lot of knitting, your, your punishment was composting. So like no, no detention, very, very holistic, very calm, very cool. Everything was very uh, just mellow really there was a lot of like knitting involved Um, there was just a lot of a lot of hands-on types of things so um do you think your educational experience prepared you for life meaning were they giving you the tools you needed to live a healthy happy life i think that's a tricky question i went it's funny that you ask that specific question because i went to a quote-unquote college preparatory high school And when I got to college, I remember thinking, whoa, this is what they consider college prep. I can't imagine what they consider uncollege prep because I just felt so unskilled in, in the 
the basics. Like math was just very challenging. Science, I felt like was much more challenging than it should be. Um, I felt like I really had good, good skills of, of project management and teamwork and that kind of thing. But there was really no, no concrete math and science going into college. I, I didn't feel like. Okay, so they didn't prepare you for college, certainly adequately. What about prepare you to keep yourself healthy? Meaning, did your science courses or your health courses give you the tools you needed to stay healthy? For example, did they teach you anything about ticks and tick diseases? Not at all. I don't feel like there was any aspect of any school that I went to about really health besides Waldorf focused on making a lot of meals. So they made a lot of like lunches and stuff there and like homemade food, which was great. But going into middle school and high school, there was zero conversation of really any health aspects, period, let alone tick prevention, let alone mosquitoes can maybe transmit Lyme. There was, there was none of that action going on. So when did you first discover that ticks and tick diseases existed? In April 2018, after I was diagnosed with chronic Lyme. Okay. So, I had no knowledge of any tick-borne illnesses beforehand, really. Okay. So now when did, you, when did you discover that you were passionate about the culinary arts? Uh, now, I know that's what you went to college to study. When did that passion begin to form in young Margo? Always, as long as I, you know, as, as little as I can remember, I've always loved to cook. Um, and as I got older, I really liked the science aspect of food. I just thought it was really interesting what, you know, there, there needs to be water and there needs to be X, Y, and Z to make up a food. And I I just always thought that that was very interesting. And I've always, I've always enjoyed cooking. I think in high school, I realized I was doing a lot of projects on chefs and I was doing a lot of food-based projects. And I was realizing this is more than just a fun little hobby. You can go to school and you can make money for this. And I love to cook. So why wouldn't I want to make and monetize off of that. So um, how was your health during this phase of your life when you're in high school and you're getting ready to go to college and you are, um, you're developing a passion for the culinary arts? Um, how was your health? My health was good for the most part. I had some weird things where I had like scoliosis, for example. And so I went to a chiropractor and he cracked me and happened to break a rib. And so I had these kind of weird things where people were like, well, a chiropractor has never broken a rib of anyone that I know. And I was like, well, I guess I'm small. So I, I kind of attributed it to these, these weird little things. Now looking back, I was like, okay, I probably had weak bones to begin with from something else. But at the time I, I was pretty healthy and I had missed school for a bit when I had this broken rib situation. So there was periods of kind of strange little things which, you know, looking back on so many Lyme journeys, that's there. But there was nothing at the time that was chronically keeping me down, so to say. Okay, so let's talk about going to college. You, so you decide uh, at the end of your college preparatory experience that you're going to go to college and you're going to study the culinary arts. Um, what schools did you consider and where did you ultimately go to school? So we had a couple colleges come visit the high school that I was at. And a few of them sounded great, but they just focused on the dietetic aspect of it. And I think this is really interesting because a lot of these 
dietetic schools, actually 99% of them that are teaching this, don't implement any form of cooking, which I find fascinating because if your job after you become a dietitian is to be recommending what to eat to people, you need to know how it's cooked. You need to know, you need to like understand the time involved. There's so many things that go along with that. So I, I couldn't understand why none of these schools were teaching that aspect. So Johnson and Wales, the school that I ultimately chose to go to, came to my high school. I got some information from them and then ultimately went to visit decided that that was the school where you could do both. So I could get an associates in culinary arts and then a bachelor's of science in clinical dietetics. Now there's, there's a well-known Johnson and Wells in Rhode Island here on the East coast. Was the school that you went to in Colorado related or somehow connected with the school in Rhode Island? Yeah. So there was four branches at the time. The Rhode Island campus was the main Uh, Denver was Another, there was a one in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then Miami as well. So what was your experience like at Johnson & Wales when you moved to Colorado? It was a lovely school. It was small. It was beautiful. It was in a city that I do feel like is actually very similar to San Diego in a lot of aspects. We trade the ocean for the mountains. But other than that, the people are very similar. Um, it wasn't too far away from home, so to say. Um, so it, it felt fairly close. There was a lot of aspects of the the school and the area that were a plus. Um, the school itself, I felt really good about because they were so specialized and I felt like I was going to college to complete a task. I was going in to get two degrees. So I didn't really, one of the things that was really appealing was there wasn't a lot of outside commotion. They didn't do sororities and fraternities. They didn't do um, just a lot of generic college things. So a big appeal to me was I can go in, complete, and and get out. So you're really a focused student at a focused school. Correct. And of course, that part of what the they were focusing on, and you are focusing on was were the culinary arts and the impact that food has on your health, correct? Correct. So now you're essentially a, a health professional. And I'm wondering, as part of your coursework, when you were studying about uh, the importance of food and the importance of, of protecting yourself from, um, from illness, whether or not they taught you anything about ticks in Colorado and tick diseases that you might come in contact with. Nothing at all. And I think it's interesting because they focus a lot on what I like to call silly classes that you are not using ever for your for your degree and humanities is fantastic if you're in high school but when you're in college and you're in an area that is um very tick friendly so to say i think a class on that would be highly beneficial for everyone people are coming from all over the world um and so this isn't like something that you come in knowing Um, but there was no there was no information at all there was really no health information about going outside and protecting yourself health-wise. So you said you traded the, the, the beaches for the mountains. I'm assuming that you were, you were enjoying the outdoorsy experience in Colorado. Um, did you receive any information from any source, whether it be a government or from any, uh, you know, any trail you know, information about ticks and tick diseases that you might want to protect yourself from when enjoying the outdoors in Colorado? No, nothing at all. 
And not even generic things like wear long sleeves and wear long pants. I mean, there was literally nothing. I I can say confidently there was no thing across the board. So Margo's this healthy young gal who now graduates from high school. She goes to college. She's pursuing her dreams of having both practical and academic uh, information about the culinary arts. And then she starts to get sick. So when did uh, you first start to see symptoms of your tick disease, what you now know to be your tick disease, uh, while you're pursuing your dream of becoming a culinary artist? So while I was in school, I had gone to the ER several times with just a strange rash or my main symptom was just severe, severe menstrual cramps. And so they were out of control and I would have a friend take me to the hospital and I would say, you know, I think something is seriously wrong. And they would just kind of dismiss me and say, oh, okay, you're in pain, you're in pain, whatever. Or, oh, this rash, yeah, it's kind of weird. Here's like a topical, it'll go away in a week. Just kind of weird stuff like that. But it wasn't so impactful where it was like, I can't get out of bed, I can't do anything. Um, And it wasn't until after I graduated, was working, and I was still having the same the same issues with the menstrual cramping situation. And it was so bad where I was having my roommate take me to the ER frequently. Um, and they would say, sorry, there's really nothing that we can, we can do. You're just in pain. And now I know that's a huge, huge, huge manifestation of a lot of inflammation that was never dealt with. But at the time I just kept saying, I don't know what else to do. And I would have this excruciating foot pain every single time. And the bottoms of my feet, I would just scream. And I used to joke and say, I feel like a baby needs to come out. Like, I feel like there's something trapped in there that needs to just come out. And they kept saying, the the professional, so to say, kept saying, you know, we've never heard of this kind of foot pain. And I would say it only comes when I have severe, severe cramps. I don't know what to do, but I can't take it. It's so bad that I'm here. Um, And it was, the foot pain was always just dismissed. Now, looking back, there are so many beyond red flags, but at the time that was the case. And so I was in Orange County going to the ER frequently. And that's when I realized something needs, something needs to change. And so I went specifically to deal with the cramps, the debilitating out of control cramps. And so I would just went to a generic OBGYN everyone in Orange County had kind of gone to this man and everyone, I, I didn't have experience in the industry. Everyone had kind of recommended me to him. He, he was the man to go to. And I went and after he realized that I had endometriosis, he decided against my will to inject me with two rounds of Lupron. And that right there is when everything shifted in my life. Um, that is right when I became bed bound, essentially. Okay. So let's pause there for a second. And I want to bring you back to your college experience because there's, there's a lot I'd like to unpack there first. So you said that you were suffering from uh, a number of different rashes during that window of time. Talk to us about where the rashes were in your body and what the reaction was when you showed those rashes to doctors. So I had a rash, the, one of the distinct ones that I remember it was in my armpit 
and they kind of chalked it up to be a razor that I was maybe using. Um, and then once she dismissed the razor comment, she was just like, I don't know, you know, here, here's a topical steroid cream, but I don't know. Um, and so it was very la-dee-dee, -dee, la -dee da lackadaisical. And the rashes were interesting because they were just clusters of just red. So it wasn't any bullseye type of thing. It wasn't it wasn't really anything that looked like Lyme or co-infections. Um, they were just kind of chunks of these red rashes. Now, when you, when you showed your doctor the rashes that you were having, was it one doctor or was it more than one doctor? And what was the discipline of the doctor who was looking at your rashes? So I had been to the ER, I think two or three times with rashes. And then I went to just a general GP with more of like a histamine type of rash. And she was like, you just need basically prescription Benadryl. So that was kind of her solution. She was an MD. Um, and then in the ER, it was just the docs that are, you know, working at that hour. And so obviously MDs and um, it was just kind of, oh, sorry, you have these weird rashes that we don't know what to do with. Now you indicated that the doctors had given you a steroid at least on one occasion uh, or maybe more than one occasion when you had these rashes. Did any of the doctors suggest to you that perhaps giving you a steroid may not be helpful but could be harmful because of the impact that they may have on your immune system? Nothing at all. And they were all topical steroid creams, but there was zero conversation about any of that, which... Now, knowing what I know, I find really interesting, but there was zero, zero conversation of, hey, here's side effects, B, here's the immune system response from, from the, there, there was just, there was nothing. And I think a lot of times too, with topical things, it's very interesting to hear the response from, from physicians. It's usually, well, it's topical, it's fine, but the skin is the largest organ. So it's not fine. It's, it's not fine at all. So did any of these other doctors that you saw relating to your rash suggest to you that perhaps you should see a specialist like a dermatologist to determine whether or not this organ was giving you a signal that you have another problem other than just some red rash on your skin? I think one ER doc was like, you can follow up with a dermatologist if it doesn't go away, but it should go away in a week. So you should be fine. But you know, if it persists, just, just go see a derm. But it's very, very casual, very, oh, it's fine. It would just be persistent and then, and then they can deal with it. But there was never any, oh, it could be underlying of something. It could be X, Y, and Z. And I just had zero, zero idea that, I think there's things in life that we don't even know exist. There's things that we, we know exist and we don't know about, but there's things that we don't even know exist. And at the time, I, I didn't even know that something like this could exist. So Margo, you began to hint to us that you were disturbed by the decision that the OBGYN had made to provide you with a certain treatment protocol without either getting your consent or discussing with you the ramifications of doing that. And, and Matt's going to explore that with you in some detail, but I, I don't want to focus on your early care because it seems to me that that same type of attitude and that same approach, this sort of paternalistic approach that doctors sometimes take was true of all of your treatment, whether it be your request for assistance for diagnosing your, your rash or for the, you know, the early, um, you know, issues you were having with, with your menstrual cramps. It seems like everyone just sort of 
made a decision about what was best for Margot without giving Margot an opportunity to participate in this decision-making. Am I right about that reaction or um, was there a difference between the way this noted OBGYN was treating you and the way your earlier doctors are treating you? No, you are completely spot on a hundred percent. I think that um, one of the big things you know, that I'm an advocate for is informed consent. And now more than ever, it's, it's an issue. And it's a huge issue that, that occurred. You are, yeah, you're a hundred percent spot on. So now why do you think the doctors are treating you that way? I mean, I, I think anyone who's listening to this podcast can tell that you're a very bright and articulate young woman, although you weren't as educated at that time as you are now, you were certainly in college and you were, you were pursuing a uh, degree. Why do you think the doctors are so paternalistic about the way they treated you? And why do you believe they weren't giving you an opportunity to make a decision about what type of care you would accept or reject? I think as a physician, you always want to find a, a solution. And so finding a solution requires finding the problem. And there's so many things involved with the medical system, but when you have five minutes with a patient and you have, you know, 50 patients a day, it's okay. We see a rash. We've got to move on. And I, at the time, had no understanding that, uh, that tick-borne infections and tick-borne diseases create a whole cascade of issues. And so, you know, there, there are so many things, but I think a really good, good portion is the medical system, especially the, the generic Western, so to say, approach is very specific per issue. And it's not, let's look at the whole system and see what's going on in the whole body. It is, okay, you have a rash, go see a dermatologist. Okay. You have, um, you have cysts in your ovaries. Okay. You have inflammation, you have lesions, you have adhesions, et cetera. It's, it's go see an OBGYN. It's not, oh, you have inflammation in your whole system that needs to be dealt with or a very one, one doctor for everything. And that a is not how Lyme works and B it's not how any system works. It's not how any body works. It's not how any system in life works. You think about life and everything has, you know, a, a flow and a rhythm and this approach of going to a dermatologist for a rash and going to a, an OB for just these issues is just not the way to go. And, and granted, there's so many, there's so many people that have specific things and these specific narrow windows can help. Yes. A dermatologist can help a million people and OB can help a million people. But at the end of the day, this is a a whole, a whole cascade of things. Right, so, you, so you have these migrating symptoms at this stage in your, in your journey, right? Because you're now also starting to have foot pain or arthritic type pain in your foot as well, right? So clearly you had no one who was looking at the overall set of migrating symptoms. You have, you have a specialist looking at each specific individual uh, symptom and treating each symptom, never tying them together. So that's one level of problem. So let's, let's look at the next layer of problem, right? And that is, do you believe that the doctors you were working with were seeing you as a medical partner who should be making informed decisions? Or do you believe that they were trained to ride in on the white horse and resolve the problems that you were presenting with? Yeah, I think that you know, they were seeing each body part and kind of uh, addressing it that way. Um, 
yeah, there was never a comprehensive look at the whole situation and there was no empowerment of, Hey, you are a human being that is experiencing all of this. Why don't you tell us what's going on? And then let's all make a decision together. That wasn't until, um, about a year and a half ago. So that, that was fairly recent, but I, up until then I had experienced no, let's try to figure this out together. It was all very, I will tell you what X, Y, and Z is wrong. And then I will go from there. And I I didn't even know at the time, like the skin is the largest organ. So there's so much just in that. There's so much in these little tidbits of information that you learn. But at the time, I I was just a lot less educated than I am now. Okay. But, but, but your doctors were not less educated and they certainly weren't empowering you or encouraging you to, to recognize that you are your own doctor, you are your best doctor, and your symptoms have to be considered holistically by you and the medical professionals you work with. Let me ask you another piece. Another layer of challenge that we often see on this podcast is age and gender. Do you believe that if you were either older, and let's focus on age first, you were 20 years old when you first started presenting these symptoms. Do you believe if you were older, you would have been treated differently than you were when you were a college student presenting these symptoms? A hundred and ten percent. I actually believe. Um, so I think age is a huge, huge, huge component, especially in my situation, because I do look a lot younger than I am. And so there's there's a lot of components to unpack there. But a huge one is, yes, the age. Um, there is a, a bit of a component of being a woman. But I think a, a majority of this is about age. Uh, just a quick little example. I went to just a um, primary care physician at UCSD before I knew what was really going on. And I just kind of had a slew of symptoms. And he told me a dozen times, you look great. I think everything is fine. And at the time I was about 80 pounds. I'm 5'5". Five, five, and I was whiter than white. And he, he just kept saying, you look great. Everything is fine. You look fantastic. And he was my age. He was a resident at UCSD. And I, I think a really, really good portion of this has to do with, with age. I think there's also a component of we've never seen anything like this and you're very young. So I think the combination of the two was a match made for a nightmare. So Margaret, you are now going through a transition in your life where you were transitioning from your childhood to your adult life, right? And that's a really awkward time. Uh, you know, Matt and I have talked with other guests about this where, um, where when young people are making a transition, they want to, of course, make independent decisions. They don't want their parents to be making decisions for them. Doctors will tell us, and I can tell you, I've been through this four times with my young children. Um, doctors are more than happy to say, hey, there are privacy statutes in place, and we have to only meet with your child. And they essentially use that as a way of excluding parents from supporting Uh, people who are going through the transition. Did you see any of that? Meaning, did you think your parents were empowered to participate in helping you to get through these difficult times? Do you think maybe the doctors are using these privacy statutes as a vehicle for essentially isolating you and making decisions for you rather than you making informed decisions either yourself or with the assistance of your parents? 110%. And I think that is exactly to a T what happened with this, this Lupron situation. And I went in for a laparoscopy 
And so that's a surgery for those of you that are unfamiliar. And uh, they would go through your belly button and then two spots like right below where your pants hit. And they can go in and kind of burn and cauterize anything that's going on in the uterus. And this is the craziest experience. But after I woke up, I was very, very under anesthesia still. Um, and that is when they try to give you this conversation about needing this hormone therapy that the doctor receives for free, but gets a very large kickback from giving it to patients. And so they try to talk to you when you're beyond sedated under anesthesia and they cannot talk to your parents because of HIPAA. And so it is this whole, well, no, we can't talk to you. We can't talk to your mom who's sober, who didn't just get out of surgery because no, that would be HIPAA. And, oh, you know, you can sign documentation that maybe says, oh, we can't talk to her. And, oh, all of a sudden that card is pulled out of, oh, I've signed documentation that you can't talk to her. And then when I say, well, where's the documentation that I've signed? The documentation is magically nowhere to be found. And so there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. Um, and I'm not saying that this is for everywhere. I'm just saying, you know, be very, very mindful of where you're going because there's so much there's so much that happens behind the scenes that people are not aware of. And this was so beyond unethical and, and unacceptable. I, I could go on for a while, but that is exactly what happened essentially. And they brought me in for a post-op appointment. They know that you are sedated. I mean, they give you pain medication to manage the pain. And then they try to talk to you about, again, this Lupron situation and I say, no, 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 I need to talk to my mom who's out in the waiting room and you won't let her come back because it's some consent issue, which now I know obviously is just such, such a mask for so many other things. But it, it was just mind blowing to me that then they're, you know, I, I'm sedated and they're like, pull down your pants for this injection. And I, I go out in the waiting room and look at my mom and say, wait, I, I thought we just agreed to not do this. I thought that they were just running my insurance and maybe in a couple of weeks, you know, we'll talk and, you know, we'll, we'll see what, we'll see what we determine, but I'm sedated. Next thing I know, I have a shot in my butt and the, the effects from it are literally irreversible. I mean, there's a black box warning on, on the medication for a reason. So let's talk about the, the Lupron that you had taken and the impact that it now had on your Lyme journey, right? Because this is when you crashed. So you were encouraged to use this medication. You were encouraged to do this while you were under sedation. You were encouraged to do this without the support of your mother. You had a gut instinct to tell you that you didn't really want to do this, yet it still happens and it leads to your crash. So give us that part of the journey. Yeah. So after I got the first injection, I was still living up in Orange County at the time. And so my mom and I got in the car to head back. She was living in San Diego. And so she wanted to drive me from the appointment in Orange County back home to her house in San Diego. And so we were about halfway home. And right when we got in the car, I immediately didn't feel well. And the office's kind of response was, well, yeah, I mean, she just got a dose of hormones. Okay. And la-di-dee, la-di-da, but... All, all is normal. And we got about uh, not even halfway home and my head was out the window. I was, I was vomiting. 
I was drenched in sweat. I was white as a ghost. Um, I just remember my mom looking at me being like petrified and being like, what is happening? And we finally made it home. We pulled over so many times. I was just profusely vomiting out of the car. It was out of control. Um, And it just felt like the flu times a hundred. I have never experienced anything like that. And we got home and I, I literally could not move. Um, I, I couldn't move one thing in my body. And I just remember just sweating buckets. And I thought, I just remember, I just kept thinking to myself, I, I don't think anyone can sweat this much. Like even when you work out, you don't sweat this much. This, this is not normal. And I remember just looking down and there was just like puddles on my chest. And I was like, why are, why are there puddles? This, this is not normal. And I would be covered in goosebumps with just puddles of sweat all over me. And I was, I was so confused at the time of what was going on. And then I would say about two weeks after that, they said, you know, she has to come in and get six of these injections. The first one just started everything. But if you stop now, you're really screwed. And being as sick as I was, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do something. This is a nightmare. I have to do something. And so I spoke with my mom and they were like, you know, you have to get another five injections. You have to. And I kept thinking, you know, this is, this is the thing that killed me, but maybe it's the, I just kept thinking in the back of my mind, maybe it was the surgery. Maybe I really do need these injections. He keeps saying you need all six. And so two weeks or so later, I went up to Orange County again. I got another injection. I got in the car and realized never again. I don't know what I was thinking going back for 2.0. This man is obviously making a very large commission and I need to never step foot in the office again. And that was, that was the end of Lupron so and the beginning your, of a huge nightmare. But Margaret, what was your, what was your, your physical reaction to getting the second shot? Did you have a similar reaction to the first where you were throwing up and you had all these same symptoms or was it a different experience? Yeah. So the second shot, I had the exact same symptoms. So we were not even halfway. I was back to throwing up. It was gray. I was sweating profusely. I was freezing. So the dysautonomia for me was like the biggest symptom of just this uncontrollable temperature regulation that was just off the walls from being freezing to being drenched in sweat. The shivers were just out of control. I couldn't eat. I had dropped down um, really quickly from probably about 110 pounds to probably 80 pounds in a couple weeks. It it was just, it was out of control, the cascade of things that happened. I was experiencing really bad headaches. um, And then immediately right after the second shot, just a slew of neurological things. So I was just finding it really, really, really hard to pee. A lot of things that we just do without thinking, you know, a lot of just the generic tag, I would hold a plate and drop it. I dropped more plates and cups than than I can, I can remember. So just a lot of neurological things after the second injection. So now did you share with your doctor what your reaction was after the first injection before you had the second shot administered to you? So before we were even home, my mom was calling the office saying my daughter is throwing up on the side of the road out of control. She's gray as a ghost, et cetera. And explained all of my symptoms and they said, we'll give her a call back. We'll give you a call back. Um, I'm still waiting on that call. 
So never received a call back. And then that was after the first injection. And then after the second injection, my mom called and said the exact same thing. So she said, my daughter is back to being extremely sick, like the first injection, et cetera. And um, their response was, okay, we'll have the doctor, we'll have the doctor give you a call. And I'm still waiting for that call. So there was zero follow through and their whole big thing, which I find comical at this point was that they couldn't talk to my mom because I had signed something that said that she could not be spoken to. Now, (laughs) we all know logically that is just not quite the case. And so the fact that that was their biggest reason that they couldn't talk to me about her is, is amusing at this point. And anyone, anyone's daughter who is vomiting, who's gray as a ghost, who needs to go to the ER, who's lost like 30 pounds. I mean, anyone is will, I mean, anyone in their right mind is willing to talk to the mother, but this was all allegedly because of a a HIPAA issue. So let's talk about how your view of doctors has now changed. What was your perspective on doctors before you were sick at around the age of 20 And how has that image changed? So how was my understanding of doctors before I got sick? What, how did you, did you hold doctors in high regard? Were they people that you trusted? Were they people who you thought were, you know, were going to be able to help you anytime that you were sick? Is that what your perspective was on doctors when you were 20 years old? A hundred percent. Yeah. And, you know, I thought at the time that this information, I think I really thought that this, this kind of information was just not available unless you were a doctor. Like you, you just couldn't know about this kind of health information unless you were a doctor. That's what they were there for. And yeah, I held them to an extremely high regard. I never really thought of the term they're practicing medicine. I was like, they know medicine. They, they know medicine in and out. They, know everything. And I never understood the difference between a, a pharmacist really, and a doctor. I just thought all doctors know everything about all medications that they're prescribing. Duh, they're prescribing them like these, of course they have side effects. And of course a doctor knows, no, a pharmacist maybe knows that, but not all doctors know that. So my understanding of a doctor was they know everything, um, hold them in a high regard, they're going to school forever, which that is very true. Um, and, and don't question anything. Don't do not question the narrative at all. So how do you think the 20 year old Margo would have reacted to a statistic like this, that one of three people that visit a doctor are actually injured worse than when they initially went to see the doctor rather than getting better or leaving in the same condition that they were in? How do you think the 20 year old would have responded to that statistic? I would have been very confused. And you probably wouldn't have believed it, right? Because doctors know everything and they know about our health and they can get us better. The likelihood of them making us worse is just something we wouldn't even conceive. Now, it looks like you are the person, unfortunately, both when you were 20 and then a little bit older, when you went to your, your second doctor that resulted in you getting the, the, the crash, but that happened to you several times. You went to a doctor with a rash and they give you something they should have never given you if you have Lyme disease and that's a steroid. 
You then go to an OBGYN and you have an inflammatory condition and you're not treated for an inflammatory condition. What he does is he pumps you up with, with, with hormones and hormone dysregulation is a part of Lyme disease, but it's never even considered as part of what you're suffering and that you are made worse. In fact, you were injured at least twice on your Lyme disease journey by the very people who you're going to, to get um, better. Exactly, exactly. And no, no portion ever of an understanding that a hormone issue um, and any kind of hormone imbalance and anything like endometriosis symptoms are lessened so much with with Lyme treatment. And there's a reason for that. And of course, no, you know, wow, why do you have so much inflammation at the age of 20 years old? This is not normal. None of that ever. So it's very interesting to look back at just the amount of inflammation in my system at the time and no one, and even the amount of functional medicine doctors that I saw towards the middle of this whole situation, no one said, you know, you have some serious inflammation going on. Let's look into other things. It was it was always just very, very separate. Everything was very separate. Okay. So between the time that you now have this crash and the time that you finally get your Lyme disease diagnosis, what is that time window? So that was about two years, I would say. And how did your health change after you had this incident where you were given the hormonal injections that you were given that resulted in you having this physical crash? So post Lupron, both injections, I, after the second injection, I became completely bed bound and literally could not get out of bed. I needed help to go to the bathroom. I needed help to get water. I needed help to eat. I needed help to make food. I needed help for everything. And so that was that portion. But in the meanwhile, when I would get these upswings of, you know, 12 hours of decentness, they would be filled with going to a doctor's appointment to try to figure out what the heck was wrong with me. And the doctor's appointments at the time were so draining because I literally could not get out of bed. And so I would go in sometimes in a wheelchair and Aside from the fact that it was so draining getting in a car and going to these appointments, the appointments were extremely, extremely draining physically, emotionally, mentally, because no one knew what was wrong. And I was sitting in an office for, you know, 20 minutes to an hour, depending on who you see, explaining these symptoms, just getting glared at, like, what could possibly be wrong with you? We don't understand. So the appointments were extremely, extremely exhausting because I was in there attempting to prove that I had all of these things wrong with me that equated to something bigger than just brain fog and a rash and these weird neurological issues and endocrinology issues. And so the appointments themselves were extremely, extremely draining. And that was about a year and a half of just trying to figure out what was wrong. And so I saw at the end of the day, I saw probably about eight doctors um, from just general practitioners to naturopaths to a functional medicine doctor to a lady that now funny enough specializes in Lyme and Alzheimer's um, but at the time I was in her office having a very very bad dysautonomia episode and she wanted to call an ambulance on me and so it's really 
it's funny now looking back to hear her speak and say that she's a, a Lyme expert because I'm like, wow, well, I was having a dysautonomia episode due to Lyme that you were not able to diagnose. And you wanted to call the medics on me because you were very concerned about my dysautonomia episode. So it's very, very interesting now to think about the practitioners that I saw because I was on the right track. I hear a lot of people saying like, oh, I saw a, a blah, blah, blah. And it, it's just so completely off, off the track, but it's, it's ironic for me to look back because I was so on the right track. I saw a naturopath and she she didn't have any ideas as to what was wrong with me. But again, she was she was on the right track. A lot of the herbs that she had in mind are herbs that I've down the road I've I've taken. So it's funny to look back. I was I was on the right track several times. Um, UCSD obviously their GP did not do me any good. Um, and th- there was a lot of people, you know, in, in the mix that were, were kind of no, no benefit to me. But looking back, there were a lot of people that I, I was in line with and kind of going on the, pro- the proper track, so to say, to get diagnosed. There was just a lot of curveballs in, in the mix. Mark, let's talk a little bit about medical trauma, because it took you about six years to get diagnosed. And again, to your point, you were on track with the right doctors, but none of them were able to properly diagnose you. In fact, even a Lyme specialist treated you really inappropriately, right? So were you ever misdiagnosed with any mental health conditions? And in what way do you think you experienced medical trauma and how did that impact your your ultimate diagnosis? Yeah. So before the mental health aspect, I was diagnosed with, um, so actually, you know what, so back up. So right when the Lupron situation happened, we didn't know what was going on and my foot pain was so, so, so bad, which now I know is Lyme. And so I was inpatient at UCSD for, I believe like seven days. And during that period, they kept saying, you know, you just have like chronic foot pain and you just have had a lot of life circumstances. So they brought in a psychiatrist and she was like, you just are bipolar. So we can just medicate you with some bipolar medication. You've had a lot of life circumstances happen. I was working in a treatment center at the time and we had just had like a couple employees die and there was just like the relapse rate was really high. And so I was stressed from work. And so she kind of kept pressing that and just saying, yeah, 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 that was that. And I was so over-medicated at UCSD. They actually gave me a pain pump when I was there. And, and now I know, obviously, Lyme patients, we don't metabolize like opioids, period. And so besides the slew of issues there, giving anyone a pain pump and just saying, you know, press whenever you're in pain, I was so, so, so messed up um, in the head and not sober that I was like divulging all of these problems, but they weren't really problems at the end of the day. Like they were little things like, okay, someone died, which is a large thing. But at the time with all of my health issues, like they were little things for, for how physically sick I was. And so I was like, no, I'm so messed up, but I know that that's not true. I know that all these life circumstances have not made me bipolar and crazy all of a sudden. And, um, obviously I have a lot of neurological and, and brain, brain stuff from Lyme. And I think now looking back, obviously that was an easy cop-out, but doctors are trained to give a diagnosis and, that, that is their job. That, that's what they're there to do. And so I don't fault these people. They were there. They were looking at, you know, quote unquote symptoms and trying to just come up with anything to get me out. 
And so calling me bipolar and putting me on some anti-schizophrenic, anti-psychotic medication at the time was their solution. Now the damage that that caused once again, just like the Lupron and everything else, uh, was a whole slew of cascade of problems. But they're trained to come in, look at a patient, go, oh, wow, she's had a lot of life problems. She must be bipolar. Okay, there's a diagnosis. There just has to be a you know, like there's a pill for every ill kind of thing. There has to be a diagnosis for the slew of symptoms. Margo, I want to interrupt there because I think you're hitting on something really important here. And I think it's a, it's a fundamental problem in the medical community that every doctor feels they have to provide a diagnosis. And yeah. because you were expressing, you were experiencing some psychological distress, they could not find a physical root cause and therefore they diagnosed you with a psychological root cause illness. But I think the problem there is it's not that black and white because a physical condition will result in psychological distress. Never mind something like Lyme disease, not only will the, the symptomology of Lyme cause you to become depressed and anxious, but it's actually a symptom of Lyme disease as well to cause a psychological problem. So I think it's a really important piece that many doctors just don't understand and, and factor into their diagnosis when they're looking at a patient. 110%, you're spot on. And I think one of the beautiful things about this journey is you don't need, after, you know, so many people search for years for a Lyme diagnosis, but after you receive that diagnosis, there's like a lot of beauty and just sitting in the uncomfortability of the stagnation in a way. There doesn't need to be a diagnosis for every single thing. I mean, I, I guess clinically you can say, you know, I have encephalitis from Lyme, but there, there doesn't need to be a, a name to every single thing. We can sit with like, hey, I'm really uncomfortable with this insidious disease some days. But I think that this whole, I think we're in a, a very label society on top of this extreme pressure of doctors putting a label. And so I think b between the mix, it gets really messy. And, you know, it just makes me wonder, it makes me think so much about so many people struggling with mental health issues and how much this is potentially possibly related to a tick-borne infection. Um, it, it's just really interesting to think about. Well, Margo, we, we interviewed Dr. Shea, who's the leading Lyme neuropsychologist, and he believes that every psychological condition has an underlying physiological root cause. And Rich and I have discussed this numerous times that we believe a lot of patients, as you indicated, that are suffering from a psychological condition likely have a tick-borne illness or some other physiological root cause, and they're not being helped in the way they could be helped. They're just being they're just being really masked and band-aided throughout their lifetime. So, you know, but I do want to, I do want to go back to your trip in the, into, into the ER and the hospital when you had this bipolar diagnosis, because we've had many people reach out to us privately and also publicly and say, I've been missed. I've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and I've been diagnosed with other psychological conditions. I have exhibited those symptoms. I don't anymore. And I'm struggling to understand, do I really have that as a separate condition or was that a result of my disease and possibly my treatment? So what are your thoughts on that? So my initial first thought is, you know, you best. My second, and my second thought is no, you are not. But I think there are cases that these psychological issues don't necessarily go away as the physical body and the physical system heals. I think that there are probably many cases that are like that, but for me personally, and I, I can just speak for me, 
I always knew when, when this psychiatrist came in at UCSD and said, you're, you're bipolar and whatever, and you need X, Y, and Z. I always knew that that was not the case. Now, if maybe she came in and I've, I've always had that inkling in the back of my mind, I'd be like, yeah, you know what? I think we're onto something. I think we are onto something. And for me, I don't really have any shame in like mental health issues and like that whole stigma. And so I would be like, we found a solution, but I, I don't think that, I think that, you know, your body best. And if you feel like that sounds ridiculous and you're healing physically and realizing, wow, a lot of this is from the bugs, so to say. That diagnosis doesn't count for anything. Someone coming up to you and saying, you know, you have mania doesn't, doesn't qualify anything. You know you. And who, who's there who's there to look at that? Is, is, is the psychiatrist looking at your hygienics blood work and and seeing that. I mean, there's just so many things, but I think, you know, you best and going off of what, what someone else has labeled you. It kind of reminds me like of, of in high school, you know, you go around and you carry this, Oh, I was the fat girl. I was the skinny girl. I was the whatever for the rest of your life. Well, those people told you that in high school, but like you have the identity, you have the, the authority to believe that yourself and take that on. And for me, I don't take that on. So I knew the second that I left UCSD, that was not the case. So I personally didn't go around to other doctors when I was trying to figure out what was actually wrong saying, Hey, I was diagnosed as bipolar at UCSD because that didn't, that didn't vibe with me at all. I knew that that was not even close to the case. I knew that none of this was initially from a mental health issue. Like none of this stemmed from a mental health issue. If I didn't, if I felt really, really, really out of control and really manic before all of this for my previous 18 years on the planet, I would think, okay, maybe there was something else going on. So I think it's really great to look into, but I knew for, for 18 years that I was sharp. I was pretty sane. I had pretty rational thinking and all of a sudden I can't hold a plate and I'm peeing myself. So to me, the proof was right there in the pudding. So, so although you knew you didn't have, you truly weren't bipolar and you kept going forward after this to find the root cause, you did mention that while you were at the hospital, they did prescribe you some antipsychotic medications. What were those and what impact did they have on your health? So this is really interesting. They put me on a medication called Zyprexa and there's a lot of things here to unpack, but I think the main, the main thing is they put me on this medication while I was there. And then when it's time to leave five to seven days later, I say, wow, you've just thrown the kitchen sink of medications at me between gabapentin for this quote unquote nerve foot pain that I was having, this Zyprexa because I'm psychotic and bipolar. And now pain medication, Zofran because I'm nauseated. And when I say, what do I do with this Zyprexa? You take it every day. I said, well, there's only 15 days left. So what happens after the 15 days? Oh, you can get an appointment with our team here. You call the team and they can get you in five months later. Five months later. So I say, so after the 15 days, cold turkey, 
I'm thinking to myself, cold turkey. Oh no, get in, get in, get in. Call, call, call. Oh yeah, you can come in. Yeah, you can come in the beginning of next year, basically. Now, there are so many things that are so beyond dangerous about that. But before you're putting anyone on an antipsychotic, you need to understand that they can't just go cold turkey off of that. And if that is your, if that is your, your way that you're wanting to do things, like you need to be calling your resources. You need to be calling your, your um, psychological team here and psychiatric team and, and realizing that they don't have any availability for five plus months. There needs to be measures put into place. I don't know, you know, whether that's case management or nursing or whatever, but there's nothing. It's, you know, here's all this medication. Here's the kitchen sink. So you're comfortable while you're here. And then bye. And we, we don't care. And I was calling, my mom was calling, you know, saying, I think this is dangerous to just go off of cold Turkey and crookets, complete crookets. And so I, I ended up going completely cold Turkey off of it. Um, I, I knew that there was no need for me to continue on something that it would be like putting a bandaid on, on, you know, a hairy arm. Like I'm, might as well to shave the hair. Mine, like, there's no point to just cover it up with a Band-Aid. And so I knew that I didn't need this medication. Like I knew that there were so many other things going on. And so I took the risk of just going completely off of it. I think that there are cases, I know that there are cases where people have been to the hospital, they have Lyme, obviously they don't know, they're given antipsychotic medication and it really helps. I have heard countless stories. So I do not doubt that a lot of these medications do help, but there are so many more things to look into. And I know often with Lyme patients, we have such different responses to all medications, especially psychiatric medications. And so doping these people up on, in my case, Zyprexa um, and gabapentin, you know, is another dangerous situation. It kind of, you know, is a slippery slope, like all of these all these other situations that just prolong the inevitable. So essentially it's masking the root cause and delaying a diagnosis, which is allowing Lyme and people who are known to get deeper into your body, making it more and more difficult to treat. Exactly. And I know also too, you know, I want to touch on the, the, the suicide rate with Lyme, the suicidal ideation, all of that mental health stuff that comes along with this disease there are medications like to cope and to deal with that and to make the situation better. Like I am not negating that by any means, but that is once you find out what's really going on. This is not like, and, and none of these, I find it really fascinating that none of these hospitals that are research hospitals are doing brain scans. Like no one ever said, let me do a CT of your brain. No one said, let me do like a blood flow check and see if you're even getting some blood flow in there. No one did an MRI. Like no one's looking at brains yet. If you go in with a broken wrist, the first thing that they do is say, let me do an x-ray, let me do a CAT scan, let me do an MRI, et cetera. Let me do some kind of imaging. But you're doping me up on all of these meds and you've never once looked to see if there's an injury. You're hearing that I've experienced death. Like what? the two don't, the two don't equate. So Margo, I think what I'm hearing from you, and this is a really important discussion that we don't really talk about enough on this podcast is that yes, even once you have a root cause diagnosis of Lyme and or a tick-borne illness, it's okay to treat your symptoms if you need to, to get through it. So meaning if you have to take some antipsychotic medications to help you through it, because Lyme does cause psychological issues, that is okay to do that to help you get through the treatment while you're addressing the root cause and to not be ashamed of it is what I'm hearing from you. A hundred percent. I mean, I can't imagine 
myself or so many others going through treatment without at some point being on some form of medication while treating, especially if you have like psychiatric and neurological issues, especially neurological, it is so, so tricky to treat between herxing, between all of the meds, between everything without being on some form of medication to make the situation easier. And I don't want to call it a mask in this situation because I don't think that it's a mask. I think it's just a bridge to help because treating this disease is brutal, as you guys know. And and I, I think it just makes the situation somewhat manageable at times. And Margo, thank you for clarifying that because I often use the word masking your symptoms, but I think it's important to note sometimes it's not. And it is a bridge, as you noted. It's a bridge to get to where you need to be. And it's a necessary bridge. And I think sometimes I, I present that with a negative connotation. So thank you for that. But let's go back to your experience. So you had this, this issue with, with Lupron, and then you had about another two-year window before your diagnosis. And you were seeing all the right doctors, as you noted, and you were doing everything right, but they just couldn't figure it out. So walk us through that, that, that window up until your diagnosis. What other doctors you saw? What other misdiagnoses you got? And then ultimately how you got diagnosed with Lyme disease? Yeah, so I went to a couple various doctors, MDs, naturopaths. Um, I would say those are probably the two main branches. Um, and I probably saw about four MDs and four naturopaths. So I would say it's pretty split there. Um, and then from, and one naturopath that I was seeing, she had sent me to like an endocrinologist and then a integrative, um, gastroenterologist. So I, I saw her and she kind of sent me in various directions that were helpful, but again, none of them tackling the actual issue. And I realized about a year and a half down the road that, this was all stemming from my brain. And so I had seen an endocrinologist. I think this is kind of what sent me, what sent me over. So to say I'd seen an endocrinologist and he was integrative. He was very, um, into Ayurvedic, the whole Ayurvedic way, way of thinking. And which is great. It also is a slippery slope because he told me several times that if I colored my room pink and red, I would be healed. And that was all that needed to take place. And he told me that several times and then proceeded to draw me diagrams and told me that if I understood my pituitary gland, that I would, everything would be great once my room is pink and red and I understand the pituitary and the HPA whole system. And so that was my tipping point. I think there was just quite a few tipping points, but that was one right after that. I went to a man in Newport beach, um, that I am happy to talk more about, but he does a procedure where he puts a catheter from the groin up to the neck area and he quote unquote resets the nervous system <laughs> by doing that. And after I saw him and the endocrinologist, I realized we have a serious problem and I need to go get a brain scan from the one and only Dr. Amen. Um, I think the, the experience up in Newport beach after this consultation for this potential resetting of my nervous system was just my absolute tipping point. The, the doctor walked in, looked at me and said, you don't have dysautonomia. Bye. And, and walked, literally walked out. And I remember sitting there with my mom thinking, whoa, whoa wait, we just drove two hours. 
I just waited an hour in your waiting room because you're waiting an hour late. I'm so sick. I'm drenched in sweat. I am shivering. I barely can speak. I'm in a wheelchair and you walk and look at me up, up and down and go, you don't have dysautonomia and, and walk out. And I kind of thought my life was going to change after this appointment. I thought this man is going to reset my nervous system and we're going to be good to go. And so I left and thought, oh, I cannot carry on. I literally cannot carry on like this. I will not make it. Um, and that is when I, I brought up the Amen Clinic to my mom. Um, and that was more from, I was really blessed. I had a lot of knowledge from, from my professional experience. Um, so Margo, I want to interrupt there because I think what you said is really powerful that, that a lot of this is, is a slippery, slippery slope, right? Because Ayurvedic medicine has helped a lot of people, including Ali Hilfiger, Noel Ellie that we've interviewed, and even Emily Levy, the co-founder of Mighty Well. They've done things like combo and, and done a lot of these, these treatments, and they've had great benefit in their healing journey to supplement what they're doing to treat Lyme and co-infections. But in your case, I think they turned you off to that because they kind of went over, over the top with it and turned you off to that healing modality as a whole. And I think the same is true with the, the nervous system piece of it as well, because we do know that Lyme dysregulates the nervous system. And we do know there is value in the vagus, the vagus nerve and being able to do things to stimulate the vagus nerve. But the way it was approached and brought to you was so over the top and just ridiculous that it turned you off altogether. Would you agree with that? Totally. Yeah, exactly. And it's why I say like I was on the right track because it's like the nervous system regulation. Like, yes, that is a huge, huge component. And one of my, my biggest pieces of work right now that I'm doing is like vagus nerve and really toning the vagal nerve. And so it's interesting to look back. I was definitely on the right track. And it's funny that the whole Ayurvedic system, it's, I, I'm trained in yoga. I used to teach yoga. And so when I, I met this man and I thought, we're going to vibe, this is going to be it. But at that time, I still didn't know the root cause. And he he didn't know anything about infectious disease and, and Lyme or anything like this. And so it really, really turned me off. I thought, this is a really, really big disservice that you're doing because you're telling me to color my room pink and red. And I know I know the history and the lineage of this this science, so to say. Um, and this is not how this is not how it works. So I was very turned off, but I think at the end of the day, um, you know, years later, I've come full circle where it's, you know, you integrate a little bit of everything and it, it all vibes eventually, but this very dogmatic approach of, you know, only Ayurveda can heal, you know, only Western medicine and IV antibiotics, like it, it just becomes very messy. So I think a, a merge in the end of everything is, is what works beautifully. So Margo, talk to us more about Dr. Daniel Eamon, because we've heard a lot about him. We know he's a Harvard-trained um, psychiatrist, and we know he's done a lot of great work to help people in the Lyme community. So walk us through what it was like going to see him and what kind of tests you did while you were there. Yeah, so I actually um, know Daniel Eamon from his lectures that I have attended up in Orange County. Um, and so I had attended quite a bit of his, his informational um, lectures and, and courses like that. I've seen him speak, um, many times. And the very first time I heard him speak, I thought, wow, if I ever have a brain issue, God forbid, I, I would go to see this man. His, the stories that he was sharing about his family were, were just different than, than any stories that I've ever heard of. And we, we hear from doctors, oh, my kids, blah, blah, blah. And, 
And it's always nice, but this was very, very heartfelt. It was, it just felt very different and it felt very life-changing. He was talking about, you know, scanning, doing these spec scans, which measure blood flow in the brain on his children and how it was life-changing for their behavioral issues. Um, And I thought his scan was very interesting in the aspects of there are so many brain scans that measure the activity and the electrical input and this, that, and the other, but his scans are measuring blood flow. And to me, when, you know, you're examining a broken leg, et cetera, you're looking at obviously breaks, but you're also looking at blood flow. And so that logically made a lot of sense to me. Um, And I knew that there was something very very not right with my brain and not well. And so I figured that was probably the next best place to go. And I was at the point where I was like, if he can't figure it out, I don't know who will, because I cannot function like this anymore. And so I went to his headquarters up uh, in Southern California in the Costa Mesa area and they did a spec scan. So the course, the protocol, how they, they work up there is a two-day t- type of, of treatment. So you go in the first day, they do um, some work on the computer with your, your responsiveness, so to say, um, and how quick you are with, with that kind of stuff. And then gauging like spatial and, and other kind of indifferences from there. And then they do an IV and do a brain scan of your brain while you are at rest. And then the next day they bring you back and do another one while you are doing computer work. So they do the two different ones at rest and then working. And there's so many things right in there that were a challenge um, because I have no veins. And so just getting a line to get this contrast type of substance um, in me for for them to do these scans was a whole event in and of itself. And so that was traumatic in a way, so to say. And then once they finally got the line in me and were able to do these scans, um, I remember after the, the computer scan, I was just so exhausted. And the whole process was two days. It was, it was fairly short. I would say I was in their office, maybe the first day for four hours, and then maybe this the second day for the same. And I just remember being so exhausted, thinking to myself, like, there has got to be an answer, but no one can be this exhausted from just brain problems. And so the second day, when they do the second scan, they have you wait a couple hours, and then they compile all the information together. And then they have you meet with the doc to get kind of their thoughts. And I met with the medical director of uh, the Amen Clinics. So uh, Dr. Robert Johnson, who was very, very kind. He, he was very, very kind. But he came in and they, um, there was someone else training with him at the time. And she was going to work at one of their other clinics back east. And she was training um, with him. And they were kind of just going through some stuff and they, they take a lot of information on you. And so he was asking a lot about my college experience and my grades in college. And they look a lot about, um, they look a lot at your previous educational history because they're trying to gauge what was going on when you were, when you were functional essentially, and what's going on now. And so he was looking at these grades saying, you know, you couldn't, 
you couldn't have graduated college with these grades with the brain I'm seeing that we just scanned. There, there's something not, there's something not right. And after hours, he said, you know, I think you have Lyme disease and I think you have a really, really toxic brain. And I just remember thinking I have a tick infection. Like you think that I have a tick bite, but I have a really, really, really messed up brain. Like the two just didn't even mesh to me. And he said, you know, you need to go get this blood test and then we're going to link you up with the main doctor who treats Lyme for this clinic. And she happens to be in DC, Washington, DC, and you can zoom with her, um, until you can travel and we will, we'll see what these Lyme, these Lyme tests say. And so they immediately sent me for, uh, just a generic lab corp Western blot, um, and that came back. There was like one band that was positive and then – and initially came back negative. I'm sorry. And then they did another test and there was like one band that came back positive. And then they decided to run a full hygienics panel. And that was when – that was when the slew of, of everything came out. So, Margo, what came back from the hygienics test? And I think it's important to note that if it weren't for hygienics, an out-of-pocket lab that many doctors don't even recognize – you never would have been able to identify that you had Lyme disease because the Western blot, which is horribly inaccurate, was a negative and then sort of a indeterminate, it sounds like. So what was the results of the hygienics test and what co-infections did you end up having as well? Yeah. So um, I had one of the highest numbers that she had seen for Babesia. Um, and then I had BART as well. And then um, Rocky Mountain body fever as well. Right. That's about a fever. And now that you know that you had all of these things, did you, did they put the connection between Bartonella and your foot pain once they realized you had Bartonella? I mean, looking back, so much of what you went through correlates yeah. back to various tick-borne illnesses like Lyme and Bartonella and all of your symptoms. Yeah. So this is actually really wild. And for people that have not been diagnosed yet, this is where I'm like, listen in because I was filling out this questionnaire for this Lyme doc with the Amen Clinic in DC. And one of the first questions on her paperwork is, do you have excruciating foot pain at the bottom of the soles of your feet? And I'm like, I just remember my mom being upstairs and me like screaming and being like, this is the first paperwork that I've ever seen that says, do you have excruciating foot pain on the soles of your feet? Yes, I do. Finally. And I'm like, I know this is all together. Like there was no doubt in my mind, but I just remember my first call with her being like, I have this excruciating foot pain. I've had it for years. I've had it for many, many, many years. It only comes uh, with my cycles. Like, this is it. This is the answer to all of my questions. And she's like, oh, just such a casual response. Oh yeah, that's a huge symptom of Bartonella. (laughs) And I remember my mind just being blown. Like this is the answer to all of my questions. I mean, aside from all like the dropping of the plates and the peeing myself and all of that, like, I just felt like the foot pain in and of itself was the answer to all of my questions. I was like, I'm in the right spot. Here we are. Well, thank God after I think about six years, you finally found somebody who listened to you and understood Lyme disease. So now that you had all these positive labs, what was your first course of treatment moving forward with? Um, so is it, was it the actual, was it the clinic or did you, were you referred out to another doctor or specialist after getting the positive tests? They wanted to keep me in the clinic. So I was seeing a doctor, the only doctor that treats Lyme uh, out of the Amen clinic. And 
because of the way that, you know, MDs are allowed to practice medicine. I was out here on the West Coast. She was on the East Coast. And I, I didn't quite realize at the time how sick and how, how insidious and how really buried this, this disease was in me. I followed her protocol and, and she was prescribing the best that she was able to for the situation that she was in. And so she was treating, you know, across the state, you know, uh, across the country essentially. And there's, there's only so much that you can treat. And so she was giving me oral antibiotics. And I like to say, you know, I think I was getting little, little drips of, of treatment here and there. But I wasn't really being treated because at the end of the day, taking, you know, a couple of clindamycin and a couple of Bactrim every day is just not, is not the level of treatment that I needed for the stage of the disease that I was in. So Margo, clearly you needed more than oral antibiotics, but what do you, can you talk to us a little bit more about the limitations placed on a doctor treating somebody remotely from another state? You, you mentioned that she had a lot of limitations because of that, that treatment practice that she had. So why couldn't you treat you the way she needed to because of this whole virtual telehealth that you were that you were experiencing with her? At the time, I didn't know what a PEC line or a port was. But I think that if I was in the same state as her, she would have said, go get a PEC line right now. But because I was out here in California, a they're easily infected. B, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole a slew of things that come along with getting a pick or a port. She wasn't able to provide the level of care that I needed, but I know that she wanted to. And so being on the East Coast, she couldn't, you know, keep tabs on, I wasn't able to travel at the time. I went out there once, but I what this wasn't, I couldn't just jump on a plane if I thought, you know, maybe my pick had an issue. And so she treated very, very, very moderately and very, very mildly because A, obviously you guys know the Herxing involved and we had just started treating. I had just been diagnosed. And so she had no idea what potentially my A, allergic reactions, B, herxing wise. And C, I think a lot of, a lot of it has to do with liability at the end of the day. And by her saying to me, Hey, you know what? You really need a pick, which is what should have been done immediately. There's people out in California that can treat and they can keep an eye on your pick they wanted to keep me in house. And so essentially what they did was just say, you know, here's oral antibiotics. Here's that. Here's what we can do from across the state without, without potentially causing harm because there can be a lot of reactions. And so she could only prescribe certain medications, which doesn't work with a Lyme patient. We, we need a doctor that can prescribe everything and, and immediately because things can go south so quickly. And so she was only able to prescribe certain antibiotics. She wasn't able to prescribe um, IV antibiotics. And there was just a lot of, a, a lot of lack of care, I guess you could say, the, and, and the level of care that I just, I, I needed something much higher. So Margo, I don't mean this to come across as aggressive or disrespectful to this doctor, yeah. but the problem that I see is you were very, very sick. 
And this doctor you're treating with, who's the only Lyme specialist at this clinic, is not telling you you need more treatment than she can provide, or even recommending you partner with another doctor locally to work with her because she wanted to keep it all in-house. And that really did you a disservice, I feel. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? It did me an extreme, extreme disservice, along with prolonging the inevitable. We know with this disease, the longer that you do not treat, the sicker you get. She is an expert in that. She knows that. And so I think it is a very, very unfortunate circumstance when physicians want to keep physicians in-house for their benefit. We know that this disease is extremely, extremely expensive. We also know that this disease is really not covered by insurance. And so you add up all of the, you know, little things there. And my red flag meter is, you know, as high as it can possibly be. There's, there's also a really, really unfortunate situation that occurred when I actually visited the office, which I realized shortly after that was my, my time to part ways because I actually needed to fly to the office. She needed to see me once in person during this, this year and this, this year that I was treating with her. And while I was there, she gave me a Myers. And so for those of you that are not familiar, it's a IV that is um, mainly vitamin C. There's some magnesium, there's some zinc, there, there's some other things that can go in there. And then occasionally, sometimes they'll do either a push after or they'll push glutathione through there, which is a massive, massive detoxifying agent that you need to work up to. And anyone that is sick knows that. And any physician that is treating this disease knows that. And I was given a Myers. And then right after that, I was given a very, very large push of some glutathione. And they sent me to the airport after that and had me get on a flight back to California right after that. And I have never been so sick. I I have never, ever, ever been so sick. And so aside from driving, you know, my mom driving me from Orange County to San Diego after Lupron, this was, this was the second worst. And so she was very, very aware that I was jumping on an airplane right after. So the whole situation was very, very unfortunate from the, the minimal care of knowing that I was so bed bound from then pumping me full of, of stuff in, in the office to then sending me on a flight and anyone that has this disease and anyone that has been treating this disease for as long as this physician has knows the potential ramifications and consequences of doing a Myers with glutathione and then sending someone to the airport. I mean, you don't really even send someone to get in a car for a long ride after something like that when you don't know their reactions. I had never had one of these at her office before. So I realized shortly after that my time had expired and it was time to move on. And I had also became highly, highly educated and empowered in the situation. So essentially you had to take your health into your own hands to be able to make informed decisions because your doctor clearly was looking out for your own best interest. But before we move on to the next part of your journey, I do want to just go back because there are a lot of people that are listening to this that are newly diagnosed or at the early stages of their journey. And they, they don't really fully understand why a vitamin cocktail or something like glutathione in high doses would cause you to have a negative experience. So can you explain why that's not a good thing to do 
right off the bat for the first time and then push somebody off and say, now go travel across the country, see you later? Like what, what's so harmful about that or potentially harmful about that for your health if you're newly diagnosed with Lyme disease? Yeah, so there's so many things, but one of the, the first things that comes to mind is the fact that Lyme patients are toxic little bombs walking around. And so we might look like that is the, the crazy thing about this disease is, you know, so many look so great on the outside and people will be like, your skin is great, your this is great, you're walking, but your insides are a toxic nightmare and you don't have a way to see that before you're getting these, these IVs. And so with all of that going on in the system, we don't know like the toxic burden, we don't know what is going on. And so you really have to go slow with this stuff. And there's this fine line of figuring out if it's like an allergic reaction, if this is a, your first time getting it, or if this is just a really bad Herx reaction. And so Herxing is this, this detoxification cascade essentially and the symptoms, the symptoms are fairly different than an allergic reaction. But in the beginning, when you don't really know your body very well, it can be very, very challenging to tell. And it's why any educated Lyme doctor says literally, literally, you start with one drop of a tincture, like one drop and not one dropper full, but like one literal drop. And you think that's crazy. That's ridiculous, but there's a reason. And so you think about that, but IV version, right. It's just going straight into the bloodstream. And so dumping a whole bag of the thing with these mixtures is it's not just one thing. You're not just getting a bag of vitamin C and then you're like, okay, maybe we can assess how I feel like this is zinc. This is so many things. And so a, if you have a react, an allergic reaction, you really don't know what it's from. It could be from the vitamin C. It could be from the zinc. It could be from the magnesium. It could be from the glutathione. Like you don't know. B, the dosage is, it, it, it varies at places. And also Lyme patients, the weight aspect is a huge thing. Patients can go from being, you know, obese to so thin very, very quickly. And so you don't know how all this getting pumped into the system is going to react. There's, there's just so many different variables and glutathione just in particular is a whole separate can of worms because it's such a, for, for Lyme patients, it's such a heavy detoxifier that IV can, a lot of Lyme patients that are, are healing can barely do IV. Um, and so there's just, there's a lot of things there. There's a lot of reasons that that shouldn't be done. And there's a lot of reasons that it's dangerous, but, um, I would say a, a big reason, especially is just the glutathione considering, um, that that is such a, it's the master antioxidant of, of the whole body. And so it does so many things and it, I, I think also with Lyme patients, there's, there's this cascade of things that happens, you know, one thing turns into a million other things. And so for example, like I used to get a push of glutathione and then have a histamine response. And so I would get really, really flushed and I would get like broke, kind of broken out. And then I would get really, really faint. And some naturopaths would chalk that up to be like, it, it do, it's not good for you no, I'm so toxic. It actually really is good for me, but I'm so freaking toxic that this cannot process. So like we need to go a lot slower. So there's so many things, there's so many different ways to do things. Once you realize the actual problem going on, um, glutathione is like one of my, my biggest best friends now, but at the time I, I would get so sick from it. So 
I, I think there's so many reasons that all these can be dangerous, but that is, that's a huge one. We just don't know how the body of the system reacts. So Mark, I want to get a little bit deeper on this before we move on, because as you know, glutathione for, for myself and for Rich and for a lot of my family members and friends has been a very powerful tool in my healing journey from, a, from an antioxidant standpoint for inflammation and also just detoxing in general. But I, I know your, your caution is that people that are really sick should be careful and do it gradually. But, but essentially glutathione is, is allowing your body to have less inflammation and then purge the toxins in your body to help flush out the toxins. So why at a high dose would that be harmful if it's just allowing your body to flush out the toxins that are already present? So I don't want, I don't want to scare people away from it. So if you can go into a little more detail yeah. about why it's dangerous. Yeah, definitely. So like pros and cons of everything, but it's also an interesting, um, it's also an interesting situation because orally the absorption is so different than IV. And so I think for people just starting off, oral is the way to go because the absorption is less. Um, it's just a way to kind of slowly go on into it. I love the liposomal, um, forms. I know like Quicksilver makes a great one. Research Nutritionals makes another really great one. Um, but that is kind of like a lower, lower way to just kind of start off the, the detoxification process. It's so, so important for, for detoxifying. It is amazing during a Herx. I mean, it is just great as you guys probably have experienced. I'm sure you've really experienced that because yes. it's just, it's a tool. It totally mitigates symptoms, but gone too fast, especially IV. Um, it can be really risky and you're essentially, um, especially an IV push of it. You're the way I, I like to explain it very simply is your taking literally all of the toxins and trying to shuttle them out of the system. And when you have a really hard time detoxifying, um, you know, without anything, when you're given a big assisting agent, it can almost be too much. And so people will, you know, go, Oh, I'm allergic to the push. Oh, I'm so sick after the push. No, 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 no. You can slow it down. I mean, there's so many things you can mix it with saline. You can, you can go slower, but it, it needs to occur. It's kind of like preventing the inevitable. It's kind of like not, not treating the bugs, so to say, and not treating Lyme and just kind of taking, it would be like taking, taking vitamins, you know, taking some vitamin C and all of this, but you're not actually treating the infection. And so you need to treat, I mean, glutathione is amazing. You really, I, I would go as far to say as you need to treat with glutathione, but you also really need to go slow and know what you're doing. And I think working with a skilled, a skilled practitioner and a skilled doctor, because I, I had gotten pushes from so many doctors and they were like, Oh, you're, you're just allergic. And it was just kind of silly. And you're just having a reaction. And now it's, I push it through my port, um, frequently and it, it's, it's the biggest game changer. So there's ways to do it that benefit you. You know, I, I mix it with saline. There's, there's just so many things, but, but preventing what needs to be done is not the, it is, is not the way to go. You, you need to do it. And there, there's ways to make all of this manageable. You know, there's, there's ways to treat and not feel terrible 24 seven. Like there, there are ways to go about this, that, that make the process more enjoyable. And that is just a learning curve. Like I hate to say it, but that is just being sick for a while and learning. So Margo, let's talk more about now what happened next in your healing journey. So you realize it wasn't working out. You fired your doctor in DC. You did all this research and you became basically your own doctor and your, and your own advocate. What doctor did you look at next and what steps did you take next in your healing journey? So I looked at uh, Dr. Horowitz next. 
and listen to his book. I, one of my first, um, actually one of my first things to quote unquote go was my, keep my, my ability to read. So everything that I learned since I've been sick is from audible. Um, and so, or podcasts. So, um, I listened to Dr. Horowitz's book and I actually think that for anyone listening who hasn't treated or has just started treating, that is one of the best books to listen, to read, to get information from um, regarding just basic treatment um, and just like a basic understanding of this disease. I mean, he just kind of covers a little bit of everything and I, I feel like it's very comprehensive, but that was kind of my next dive. I, I studied, um, just a lot about detoxification. And I think coming from a background of, I have a, a bachelor's of science in clinical dietetics, which is the religion basically, if, if you will, of, your liver is the detoxifying agent of the body. You don't need anything else. The liver does everything. And, and if you don't believe that, like you don't graduate, really. I mean, that is just what they're pumping you full of in school. And so, so I came from this background of understanding like, wait, I thought that's what the, the, the body just does all that on its own. So when I'm, I'm listening to Dr. Horowitz and he's like, you need things to detoxify. And I'm like, no, that's what the liver is for. That, that's what the liver is for. And so it was really retraining my my belief, if you will, of science, because this degree that has been like nailed into me was you have a bachelor's of science. And so everything is scientific. And while it is very scientific and like that has helped me a lot, a lot of it is not scientific. And a lot of it is just gauging your own body. Um, Margo, that could be harmful because we, you know, one of our, one of our now friends that we've interviewed in the past, Alyssa Lascala, she is a, a health coach and she often posts about patients coming to her saying, I don't need to detox. I have a liver. And she does really funny reels on Instagram about this that are so hysterical, but true, where people have this false belief that they don't have to do anything and it's really hurting them. Right. So I think it's a deeper problem. I mean, you were taught this and it was, it was basically like grilled into you that this is how it is. And you had to basically unravel that core belief that you were taught to say, no, that's not true. And and Dr. Harwood, it sounds like really helped you get to that conclusion. Yeah. And I remember listening, thinking this is a doctor saying that you need to open up your detox, your detox pathways and like drain. I'm like, wait, you need to open them up. I'm like, you were born with them open. This is what the liver does. This is what, this is what the liver does. And I remember being in school, I was in medical nutrition therapy class and it was, it was the second one. And I remember someone saying, well, after I drink, I feel really sluggish isn't don't doesn't the liver need some support and i'll never forget the teacher saying nope that's the point of the liver it'll recover the next day that's the point of the liver and that always just stuck with me because especially listening to his books it, it was just like whoa 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 this is so mind-blowing in so many aspects that the body doesn't just have these mechanisms and know what to do with it and that's when stuff started clicking because i'm like wait up the stuff that i did learn in school is great and, and that is very clinical and practical and whatever but this is a doctor telling me something totally different. And this is not the first, second or third doctor that I've listened to that said some, something similar like this. So that's when things started to kind of click. And then after that, to follow up on your question, I um, started seeing Dr. Jess. And so that is kind of when things shifted 
um, for me in that regard. And she, for those of you that know her, she is the queen of detox pathways being open, drainage pathways being open, getting all of this out of the system, whether it is sweating. Um, she is the, the formulator, if you will, behind the kill bind sweat. So she is all about, you know, we need to kill and then we need to bind up all of the toxins and then we need to sweat them out. Right. So you're not just killing, which is, I think, another really common kind of scientific thought, if you will. And in, in school, I was kind of always taught you, you kill the infection and then, and then it just leaves. There's no, there's no binding involved and there's no sweating involved. And her, her big thing is we need to bind up these toxins to then excrete them. And if you are not pooping, sweating, and sleeping, we need to start there. So Margo, the, the, Drainage pathways really lead to liver detox, correct? Meaning that that when you kill and bind, they end up in the liver. But if they end up in the liver and you don't have pathways to excrete these toxins, then you become toxic. Is that is that accurate? Correct. Correct. So Dr. Jess is another, we're, we're huge fanboys of Dr. Jess and uh, we love her work on social media too. She's, she gives some really great informative pieces out there again reels that are very knowledgeable and and you know comic comical the same way yes. so 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 obviously you you did your research and you knew who the best players were i mean you're going to dr horowitz and studying him and then you're bouncing to now dr jess so walk us through what it was like to actually go see dr Ch- dr jess and treat with her and what did you do to treat next because you still really didn't have anything to help you at a real level you were doing oral antibiotics and and you were mistreated in her office and now you see dr jess so what was that like yeah. So I saw Dr. Jess. I had seen her. I, I've known her previously. So before that from some other things. So I knew her style of treating. So I wasn't going in blind. I was very particular in my next venture because after this venture in Washington, DC, I knew that my energy for this, this type of treatment, so to say, was very limited um, and needed to be focused like very precisely. So I wasn't going in blind. And I think that that's a huge thing for like listeners is really do your research on where, where you're going to go spend your next bout of energy, because obviously this disease is very, very limited in energy. You really want to conserve your energy and, and learn where to use it properly. So, um, I started seeing her and she, was like, we need to get you, we need to get you bare bones, like sleeping, pooping, eating and walking a little bit. Like, let's just get you. Were you not sleeping? Were you not sleeping Largo as well? No. So I went for literally four years with getting maybe an hour of sleep. And that was, that wasn't even together. So it wouldn't be a full hour. I would get about like 20 minute increments for maybe, I would say at least, at least three and a half years. So besides, besides being so sleep, I mean, that alone right there makes someone psychotic, (laughs) truly. So that alone right there, and a lot of it was Babesia. A lot of it was like the night sweats and just the, I was just tired and wired all the time and nine o'clock would come and I would just be wired. And so I, I didn't sleep for, yeah, for years. And so her big thing was, we just need to get you sleeping and pooping. One of the first things to, to go for me with this whole situation right after Lupron was I felt like my bladder and my bowels were like paralyzed. And so, so the sleeping and then the bathroom situation were the two 
top issues and she was like we need to get these we need to get these figured out and we also need to get you sweating I was sweating really really inappropriately and so by that I mean I would be sitting in a room that was cold and I would start sweating but I wouldn't sweat if I would go in a 130 degree sauna it would take me an hour right like so dysfunctional so so not right and so she just wanted to get you know those things kind of back to somewhat of a baseline So I worked with her for a while and did that. And then I had mentioned the uh, Cellcor products to her. Barbara, I'm sorry to interrupt. Before you go to Cellcor, how did you address those things? What did you do specifically with Dr. Jess to address the sleeping, the, you know, the bathroom problems and, and, you know, that really the core functions that you had to address first? So the sleeping, and here's where I like to say it's not a, like in, in a lot of, cases there's masks but I think this was a bridge in my case because she actually gave me a sleeping medication um a pharmaceutical sleeping medication and for those of you that like know her and etc it's like not that's not her style but any human being needs to sleep to function and to heal you need to sleep there there's just no way about it so she put me on a sleeping medication unfortunately it had the adverse response and so it kept me wired for hours, unfortunately. Um, and that's just like so many medications with, with this situation. And so we played around with some others. And finally, we got to a point where benzos, unfortunately, were just the solution for sleep for a while. And so after that, we like weaned off of the benzos. And I, I was getting a decent amount of sleep, nothing, nothing amazing, but definitely more than I was, I was getting a couple hour chunks and waking up and then going back to sleep for a couple hour chunks. So progress in some, you know, from, from 20 minutes to a couple hours. Um, and then regarding the bowel situation, um, my diet was not the, the, the largest portion, but my lack of diet because my appetite is, is not the best and it hasn't been the greatest with this situation. And I, I, I would say one of my very large symptoms is, is nausea and then only being able to eat kind of a couple foods because of the nausea. And so we really tried to get me back to eating like a full spectrum of, of food. So like it, all of that contributes to, to being able to go to the bathroom at the end of the day. And so I wasn't really eating any fruits, any vegetables. I was kind of living on toast, gluten-free pasta and like bone broth. And so just going back to the basics. I mean, everything that I already knew, I'm, I'm, you know, telling clients to eat fruits and vegetables, but I can't stomach them. And so it was time to kind of figure out a way to get creative, whether it was smoothies or soups or just like pureeing vegetables and eating them. Um, and so she helped in that regard. And then little walks throughout the day. And then a lot of Vegas nerve work, a lot of vagal nerve work. So um, coffee enemas, um, I'm trying to think I hum while I do coffee enemas, which stimulates more um, vagal nerve action. So like humming, singing, um, rebounding is really great for the vagal nerve and, and the lymphatic system. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Do, 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 do. Um, I'll like tap sometimes. So I'll just like tap like my face and like my chest. Um, and there's like a million reasons for that, but that's like more, some more vagal stuff um, and just like gets you into your body. Um, a lot of breath work. This the whole journey really takes 
a lot of people out of the body and like out of the the system. And so a lot of her work was just getting me back into my body and like back, back into the vessel, you know, this like human meat suit that we all have because so often we, we just kind of go and we're just all in the brain and it's a crazy place to be because (laughs) for so many reasons. Margot, I know what you mean, but if you could just clarify, what do you mean by it takes you out of your body and you, and you wanted to get yourself back into the body? Because I think that's a really powerful statement. And I want to make sure everybody's listening fully understands that because I think most of us can relate to what you just said. Yeah. So the disease itself takes you into kind of this space where you get really heady and you're trying to figure out every solution possible. And the body becomes so it feels like it becomes so physically sick that it's kind of like you're just dragging this thing around, if you will. And um, so we, we kind of start to separate the two where it's like this head and then we have this body that is sick. And I actually don't think a lot of people even realize that that starts to happen. And so her, I think a lot of her work with me was like describing that that's happening, me realizing that that's happening and then trying to to get more back in the body. And there's a lot of disassociation. I feel like that happens with Lyme and it's not really talked about. It kind of is, but it isn't. And people are kind of, I feel like people are ashamed of it in a way, but there's a lot of like disassociation where people are communicating to you in front of you and like your brain registers it kind of, and your body is like, okay, this person's talking to me, but there's, there's like a sheet almost. And I think when we, we try to get back into the body and the mind together and kind of merge the two together, that there's a lot, there's a lot that can happen there. And it's a hard place to get. It's a hard, it's a long journey to get to. And, but I think realizing that you get to that place is, is one of the best places because so many people can't even realize that there, there's literally like a veil between you and people. Margo, I wish I had somebody like you as a resource when I first got sick because I felt all these things and I had no idea that this was valid and related to my illness and other people can relate. So I'm, I'm so glad you're sharing this with, with everybody. So thank you for that. But, you know, if you could talk to us more now, I think I'd interrupted you earlier about the Cellcore products. And Cellcore, we have heard from, from numerous guests, is, is a really, really powerful brand that has really powerful herbal supplements to help people heal from Lyme and parasites and, and viruses, et cetera. So what role did, did, did Cellcore play next in your healing journey that you were referring to earlier? Yeah. So I stumbled upon Jay Davidson's work probably four or five years ago. This was before I was even diagnosed with Lyme. And I actually stumbled upon him. There's no accidents. It's so crazy, this journey. So I actually stumbled upon him. I was literally like desperate in a Google search, um, being like, um, mineral hair analysis, San Diego. (laughs) And he pops up and he is literally five blocks from where I'm living. And I'm like, this is interesting. This is very interesting. So I start kind of fooling around on his website and he, you know, the company was new at that point and there was, the whole system was very new and there weren't really like these protocols and formulas like there are now. And so I'm looking at these minerals and I'm like, wow, this is really great. So he has like some of the Cellcore products on his website. I'm like, wow, these are really great. Like, this is interesting, whatever. 
and then start kind of looking into it more. And I'm like, wait, this is the building block of like everything, these minerals. I'm like, hold on, hold on a second. So I start kind of scoping him out a bit. And then um, I start looking into his business partner, Todd Watts. And I'm like, okay, these guys are onto something. And so I start just looking a little bit more into the whole mineral aspect of things. And it took me down just this fascinating rabbit hole of um, minerals and all of all of the Cellcor products. And so they had just come out with Para 1 and Para 2 then, I think, and um, the Biotoxin Binder, which is just kind of the, the generic binder that they do at the time. And so um, I ordered those at the time. I knew that I had parasites. And so I was like, whatever, might as well give this a go. Um, and I did para one and para two. And for those of you that are not familiar, one is a literally a gut scrubber. And so it is a seed that literally scrubs the lining of the gut to get out parasites. And, um, so I did that with para two, which is like an herbal type of mixture to help get out the rest of the worms, so to say. And so I did both of those products. And then actually, so this is very interesting. And I think this is actually very telling of how sick I was. I went to go use the biotoxin binder. And at this point I had been learning about the whole binding. I had just started learning about how you need to kill and then you need to bind the toxins to get them out. And so I had taken this biotoxin binder, which is like the most mild binder now that I I know about them. And I was so sick. I was so sick. I just couldn't move after I took this binder. And I I thought, okay, these products are terrible. I can't keep doing this. And after maybe four or five days of just the minerals and the para one and two, I was seeing all sorts of very interesting things come out of my stool. And a lot of people report And I think this is just something interesting to note too, is a lot of people report, you know, seeing worms and, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pooping out parasites left and right. And there's nothing wrong with you if you are not pooping out parasites left and right on their protocol. And I think that that's really something important to mention because I never physically was like, there's worms. Wow. Look at them. Check them out. But I knew that I was getting out a lot of stuff. And that's kind of the basis, I think, for for a lot of healing is starting with the parasitic load. And we know that Babesia is a parasitic-like situation, um, protozoa, if you will. So I I think that starting there was, was a wise idea, although I didn't really know much at the time. And then when I started seeing Dr. Jess, I mentioned some more of their products and I told her my experience with the biotoxin binder and how I literally couldn't take one pill. And she was like, that is, that explains a lot. That explains that you are very toxic and that makes a lot of sense. Um, And so from there, we kind of worked with other binders. And then um, eventually I I did like some cholestyramine and some well call and, and stuff like that with her. But that's kind of where I started with their stuff. And it was all, I, I, I don't, I don't say this is the best way to do it, but it was all very self-taught at the time. Um, they didn't, they have these pamphlets now that are amazing. They have the protocols and everything and their website is amazing and so explanatory these days. But at the time they didn't even have these little pamphlets. And so I was kind of just like, this seems like the right dose of herbs. This is what it says on the bottle. Okay. 
but the protocols that they they now have are amazing. I've gone, um, I've done one through five um, to date, and they're all they're great. Um, it, it, this disease is not a one size fits all type of thing. So, you know, saying saying you have Lyme, okay, do do phase one through five. I don't think is the proper the proper measure and protocol to tell anyone, but they have amazing stuff. They're they have great quality, great great quality control. So, Margo, what, what next? So, I guess even before we go there, using the Para One, the Para Two, and the binders. Now that you went to see Doctor Jess, what kind of improvements did you see in your health before you pivoted to the next thing in your healing journey? I saw a a decent amount of of improvement. I. You know, this journey is so interesting because there are so many levels of healing. So at the time I was like, wow, I'm, I'm making some progress. But as, as you know, as you heal, certain other things pop up. And so at the time it was great. I do feel like it healed a lot of my GI issues. I will say that I feel like it's a very, very stripping. It's a very stripping protocol. I feel like it kind of rids you of everything. But then there's a rebuilding protocol and that that's not quite included. And so I think the rebuilding process is, is huge. And so that's kind of what I moved on to next. Um, and using things like um, SBI Protect, for example, or Colostrum or things like BPC-157, things like that to kind of repair and, and replenish the gut, if you will, because those products just strip it. So that was kind of my next go was to kind of replenish. Um, and then used, um, I also used some IV, uh, phosphatidyl serine. So it sounds like the, the cell core products helped you, as you know, to strip everything down or really help address the viruses, bacteria, parasites, etc. But then once you were basically, you know, you had, you, you were down to the to the structure, right? You were down to the, to the, the studs, you then had to rebuild and to rebuild, you did things like peptides and BPC-157 and other things to help rebuild your body. So if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about what BPC-157 is, because we've heard about it from other guests, you know, maybe one or two, and we've heard some really great success stories of using peptides and specifically BPC-157. So can you explain what it is and how it helped you rebuild your body? Yeah, definitely. So I think there's something to note here too, between the difference between kind of rebuilding and re restructuring the gut and really, um, really bringing back kind of the, the, the leaky gut symptoms and really resealing that gut lining versus mitigating some symptoms. And so I want to note here, like SBI protect and colostrum and those types of things, I feel like are really beneficial for resealing the gut lining in my case, and I think a lot of, of patients are experiencing some severe GI discomfort. Um, SIBO, obviously, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth is extremely painful. And so the peptides, specifically BPC-157, is great for the symptoms. It's great, great, great for um, arthritis. It's great for um, like muscle issues, but it's really great also for the, the gut. It's amazing as a, a, a gut healer, so to say, but again, it is not really repairing the gut. And so it's really helped me in, in symptoms and peptides 
peptides are great. Some of them can be much more healing in my experience than others. For for me, C-Max and C-Link, which are two nasal sprays that are more nootropic, they have been great in kind of helping me repair and get off an antidepressant and really have provided like a lot of benefit there. To me, those are more healing, like they're getting me off of a pharmaceutical versus BPC-157, which is helping my joints a lot, really helping my stomach. But at the end of the day, when I'm when I'm realistic with myself, it is not resealing my gut and helping my, my leaky gut symptoms. So I think that it's a great bridge. And some of the peptides can really be a healing, a healing modality. Um, I know that for a lot of people like MOTC and um, CJC and ifemorelin are, are really great. So there's a lot of these peptides that can be used, can be used in great ways. And also something to just keep in mind if, I wish I would have known this, that it, earlier in my healing journey, that some of these peptides are actually cheaper than paying for a pharmaceutical because typically you're paying out of pocket. And so while peptides can be a little bit expensive, they're, they're a much more natural, if you will, duration, um, or I'm sorry, form of, of a medication or um, that, that can get you away, away from the pharmaceutical industry, if you will. So one of the things we've heard about BPC-157, the reason I ask is because we've had a lot of people come on this podcast who have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and, you know, we're born with it. It's a genetic disorder. And then they find that they end up with chronic Lyme. And many of them have shared with us that Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome makes them more susceptible to chronic Lyme because it weakens their immune system and also mutates their collagen. And those things together really make them more susceptible to chronic Lyme. And that the BPC-157 peptide helps repair some of the joints and the collagen problems that are associated with, with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So do you think maybe in, in those use cases, they can be more healing than a bridge? Or do you think in general that they're more of a, just still just a bridge even in those use cases? Yeah, I've heard mixed things. So I've heard really, really positive things all in that regard, actually, and and healing and the joints. People are able to start walking again, Who, especially people injecting. Um, the one really great thing I will say, too, about while we're on BPC-157 is it is one of the few peptides that is orally, you know, available. A lot of them are sub-Q injections, and not everyone is comfortable with that. And the the viscosity of the peptides are, are very thick. It's, it's a painful injection. And so one of the great things that I love about BPC-157 is it is available just as a pill. Um, and the injectable kind, I have heard a lot of things like that. It is helping people long-term. So maybe, yeah, between the collagen production, between, between the combo of everything that it's doing, maybe it is really healing. And especially for people with joint issues, I think it's hard to tell. Peptides are such a new, they're, I mean, they're not, they're not new to the market, but they're, they're so new research wise. And there's so much research being done right now, which is so great. Um, there's actually a peptide conference right now going on in Los Angeles, or I'm sorry, Las Vegas, which is just amazing that like, this is, this is the time that we've come to. Um, so I find that to be really, really great. And I think the research is literally just, just starting to open. So Mark, I know we got a little deep with peptides here, but I'm going to back it up just for our listeners because you gave us some really good examples of specific peptides and how they can be used to heal various symptoms and, and even conditions related to Lyme. But 
if you could just explain for us in general terms, what is a peptide and how can they be used to help your health? Yeah. So peptides are these amino acid um, mixtures, if you will. And I am, I'm still really deep into learning about them. It is one of these topics that is, it's just one of these fields of studies that is fascinating. And in a, so an amino acid, um, many, many amino acids create essentially a protein. And so when you are eating an animal protein, for example, that is a complete amino acid profile, meaning that there are X, Y, and Z amount of amino acids um, with this specific profile to make up a complete animal meat. Um, people that are like vegetarian and vegan, when they're combining like rice and beans, that is making the same amino acid profile. And so peptides are amino acids. So it's kind of all ties together at the end of the day. Um, and so the, they're specific amino acids that are formed into liquid vials or nasal sprays, and they are compounded to have different effects. So for example, um, I was just put on growth factor. My insurance wanted like $1,000 for 30 days. I found a peptide that is very, very similar, and it's like an eighth of the price. So there's peptides for all sorts of different things, and the amino acid um, makeup is just different for all of them. It's just a fascinating field of study. So, Margaret, I just want to go back to what you said earlier, just to make sure that the, I, I understand it correctly and that the, the audience understands it is if your doctor is prescribing you something that is very expensive out of pocket, there can be a peptide or an amino acid alternative that is significantly cheaper that you can look at with a Lyme specialist or a doctor who understands these types of things. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is what I have really come to learn and understand. And they have, um, in my experience r- right now, they have really similar effects, very similar. And this is not always the case. Peptides are expensive. So if you have great insurance prescription coverage, this might be the opposite for you. But in in my case, growth factor was over $1,000. And so paying, you know, 200 bucks for peptides for two months is way, way, way more feasible. So talk to you about what you did next. So you're, you're still with Dr. Jess. You're doing peptides. You're now in the rebuilding phase and you're starting to feel better and better and better. And what came next as far as your, your treatment journey is concerned? So I actually didn't do peptides out here. And actually, maybe I should mention this for people that are in California. So I didn't do peptides with her because peptides are just now getting caught on by the FDA. And so if you are in California, peptides are extremely, extremely challenging to get. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to get any peptides um, in that care. Um, So I am seeing a physician right now in Los Angeles, and she um, is able to provide peptides. So that is currently kind of where I'm at. But after the CellCore kind of bout, I got a PICC line in because I realized that there's only so many amount of oral antibiotics and I really was not making as much progress as I knew I could. So do you feel that the cell core herbs and everything else you were doing were effective, but just not strong enough because of how sick you were and how deep the infections were in your body? Yeah. You know, I felt like we were kind of just pulling like layers of like saran wrap almost. And I felt like there were so many layers that still needed to be pulled up. 
that the products were lovely. I felt a little bit of relief, but I knew, I knew I had a lot more to go. And I also had this really strong gut feeling that I needed some, some hardcore treatment as gnarly as that sounds. I knew that I just needed a heavy hitter. Like I wasn't, I just, the progress that I was making was so minuscule. And at the end of the day, but I also feel Margo that, um, that your body may not have been ready for aggressive IV treatment right off the bat. And by doing what you did with cell core and, and really helping your body as a whole may have prepared you better to receive the IV. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I completely agree. And I think that's really interesting to talk about right there because all of these things, they're never wasted. People will go, oh, I was with this doctor for blah, blah, blah. I did X, Y, and Z. It was such garbage. Well, some of the times the treatment is, is garbage, but none of it goes unwasted. You know, even when I was, when I was with the physician in DC, I did a, a round of Malarone and I remember finishing up with her and saying, that was so silly. What was the point of that? But I was back on Malarone with, with my MD in Los Angeles. <laughs> so none of it is ever wasted. It's just layers and layers of healing. And so I think that the Cellcore products in a way kind of prepped me for the intense, intense bout of year long IV treatment that I, I am in the middle of eh, towards the end of completing. So when you pivoted over to the IVs, was this with Dr. Jess or is this now with your new doctor in LA? Yeah. So this was all through a new doctor in Los Angeles. And there was the reason that I I needed that was the reason that I needed a physician in LA was I, I needed a doctor at the end of the day that was linked up to the Lyme community very well. And also a hospital of some sort at the end of the day, because I needed I needed more medical type of care than, than I was kind of getting. So what kind of IV antibiotics did you receive? You know, what, what types of drugs did you push through the, the pick line? Was it just antibiotics or was it antibiotics and other things as well? Yeah, we did some other things as well. Um, so we did a lot of IV antibiotics. We did like IV clinda, um, clindamycin. Um, we did IV Recephin, we did IV Flagyl, we did IV Rifampin, we did IV Azithromycin. Um, I did one shot of Bicillin, which is the most excruciatingly painful injection ever. So after one shot, I, I ended up having to decline that whole round of treatment. Um, and then, yeah, so that, that's kind of what we pushed through the IV antibiotic route. Um, and then we did some other things, IV. So I did, um, IV phosphatidylcholine, not serine. Um, but I did IV phosphatidylcholine through the pick. What Um, is that? What is that used for Margo? So a lot of mold symptoms, um, and then a lot of brain fog, a lot of like neurology type of issues, but, um, really, really great for repairing the brain, um, mitigating mold symptoms. I have a lot of inflammation in my face, my neck and my eye, um, from mold. And so immediately after the first round, the first vial, they're really, really teeny little vials. And after the first vial, I just remember my, my eye and my, my face swelling going down so much. Um, so yeah, used for, for so many things, but a a lot of brain rehab and and brain healing. So going back to the antibiotics, did, was um, I have to imagine you had a pretty severe herx jumping into those severe IV antibiotics, correct? Correct. So 
what was your LA doctor's response to that? Was it just fight through it? Were you doing things to counter the herxing? Did you pull back? You know, how did you respond to that aggressive herxing you, you received during the IV treatment? Yeah, we pulled back quite a bit. And then we um, always, you know, her thing was always one bag. Let's see how you do. And then add another bag. And so oftentimes it would be like two to three bags a day pulsing. So like Monday, Wednesday, Friday typically was my schedule, but we would always start with one bag, you know, for my first go and just see how it goes. Give it a couple days, start the new bag because you want to decipher whether it's an allergy or a Herx. Um, and so thankfully I have not had an allergic reaction to really any of this stuff. Um, but I have had some really intense Herxes. Um, I think that like being able to manage them and kind of like know what to do is probably the biggest learning curve. Um, and then also for me, just getting a doctor that is responsive via email or phone whenever, because if a doctor is going to put you on a protocol like this, they need, they need to be able to be responsive if there's an issue. Um, and that was huge, huge, huge in finding, in finding a doctor that was going to, you know, mesh well with me. And she answers, she answers at midnight. She answers at 8am. She is always available. Um, and so I feel really blessed in that regard. And this is your doctor in LA, correct? It is, yeah. Are you comfortable sharing this doctor's name with the audience? Uh, yeah, so I've been seeing Dr. Erica Lehman, um, and she has changed my life, I can positively say. So how long ago from the present date were you on the IVs and the, and the pick line? I'm just trying to get context to your timelines. Yeah, so from last, so I had a pick put in last July, so just over a year ago, and I had it for a couple of months, I have a really, really bad allergic reaction to Tagaderm. I'm very allergic. And so I'm also really allergic to chlorhexidine, which is like the prep that they use for to clean the site. And so unfortunately, I had to get the pig taken out. It was about to be infected from some Tagaderm and potentially some, some other stuff that was going on. So it needed to be pulled. So I treated from like July to I would say about November with the pick. And um, that was when I was doing flagell and um, some rifampin. And then in November, when we realized the pick was going to need to come out, I still had no veins literally at all. So I went in and got a port placed in December and we started treating the following week with the port. So Margo, you mentioned that the oral and the herbs and, and the cell core were helpful, but not enough because you were so sick, but the IVs were very helpful. So talk to us about the health gains you made when you had the pig pulled and the port put in. What kind of improvements did you make? Give us, give us an example of something you were doing or, or an improvement you made that was very significant compared to where you were before. So during all of that, I just want to throw in there too, and this is huge if you have Lyme, and this is something that not one physician caught until my first day that I saw Dr. Lehman, I walked in, she said, open your mouth. She looked at my tonsils and made a joke that she didn't know how I was swallowing. They were so big. So, um, I had a tonsillectomy just backing up, um, during all of that, literally like in the midst of all of that, they sent it to pathology and there was actually, um, a very significant amount of black mold in my tonsils. So I want to throw that in there because yes, I was doing all of these antibiotics, but I also had 
literal mold removed from my tonsils that was dripping down into my adenoids. So those were both removed, the adenoids and the tonsils. So, you know, as much as the antibiotics did contribute, I'm sure uh, getting rid of black mold in my tonsils and adenoids helped quite a bit. And that was at the same time as getting the antibiotics. That was in parallel. Yeah. So it was like all in the midst. Um, They scheduled me for this like tonsillectomy and we were deep in this whole uh, pandemic situation that's happening. And so that alone right there was a very interesting experience. I've never had surgery. So it it had to be pretty isolated and pretty alone. Um, So that, that was very interesting. And so after that, um, so after that, we started treating with antibiotics via the port and it's hard to tell, you know, what came first, but I think that a combination of getting black mold out of uh, my tonsils and a large amount of IV antibiotics, I started to, um, I started to have a lot less Babesia symptoms. And that was probably like my number, those were like my number one symptoms. So the dysautonomia, the severe, severe temperature dysregulation started to kind of die down slightly. It was so off the charts that I couldn't even go into a target, for example, without just having the biggest temperature dysregulation from the air conditioning in there versus like the temperature outside. And so I started to notice little things like that. Like I could walk into a target and not have to take like five minutes in the corner to just, you know, regulate. And so I started to kind of notice little things like that. I was sleeping a little bit better. The antibiotics exhaust me so much that I was able to get some more sleep. Um, you know, my, my neurological symptoms are so tricky and they're still so present that it's, it's hard to say like those, those cleared up my brain. Like they made, they made my brain better because so many of my symptoms are, they're neurological and, you know, anti- IV antibiotics are, are great for so many things, but they also are now presenting me with, with some issues. I'm having like some tendon issues and, and some joint problems. And so there's things beforehand that I didn't notice, you know, that were just kind of, oh, I have this knee pain and now it's massively exacerbated from IV antibiotics. And so, you know, it's hit or miss. And there's doctors out there that say IV antibiotics are no go. And then there's doctors that say they only heal. And so, you just kind of try to find the middle ground somewhere. So Margo, talk to us about the potential side effects or negative effects of IV antibiotics. You mentioned that your joint pain increased significantly. Is that a direct result of IV antibiotics? You know, I, I have to think that the last two bags of IV antibiotics contributed a lot to my tendons because I was not really having this severity of, of tendon problem of, of tendon pain, I guess you should say, and joint pain that I had after, um, I, I just did two bags very recently and then, and had to, had to stop. Um, and I, I can, I can very, very confidently say that I feel like those two really kind of tipped the saddle, so to say, of, of the, the joint problems. Um, they, you know, I know, um, is it, is it Cipro? I think that's the, the IV antibiotic that does have, you know, it, it's known to come with a lot of, a lot of tendon issues. And so that's, that's the one round of antibiotics that I've declined. But other than that, I've been very willing to give it all a go. But yeah, they all do. I mean, every single IV antibiotic really comes with a warning of joint issues of potential 
tendon issues. And obviously they're not going right to the gut, but they are at the end of the day, a gut, a gut dysregulator, if you will. So, so the tendon issues are actually a side effect of the drug, not a Herx response from the drug, correct? Correct. Yes. I don't feel like this is a Herx at all. I feel like this is a direct side effect of, um, yeah, of IVANS, which is the last um, IV antibiotic that I, I attempted. Um, and unfortunately I got a really, really, really bad rash on my chest that completely covered my port site. So that's now unusable. Um, and yeah, I'm, I have to take a break, unfortunately, from trading right now because, you know, things pop up. It's, it's just how it goes. So talk to us about the difference between a pick line and a port, because you said you had to get your pick line pulled and late last year you had a, a port put in. Yeah. So I have a pick line, which is, um, I know like so many, so many interviews that you guys do, the girls have pick lines. Um, and it's just a line in your arm that goes pretty high up, um, but it's always accessed. And so I think this is like the big big difference between a port and a pick is the port, or I'm sorry, the pick, the pick line in your arm, it's it's typically kind of goes in like the upper arm typically. And it is, um, it always needs to be covered to shower, things like that. Um, It always has a bandage over it. There's always a line out. And so you can be essentially connected to an IV at any time. And it is, it's immediate IV access basically. And so often um, with Lyme patients, their veins are A, shot, B, they've just had so many pokes. So they're shot from that. C, um, Bartonella especially goes into the vascular system. And I know can cause a lot of, a lot of issues, um, with getting, with getting poked. So there's a million reasons that people get pick lines and some people just get them strictly because they need a lot of treatment and they don't want to get poked, um, a, a bunch of times. So there's so many reasons, but in my case, they, they just couldn't get, um, they couldn't get a vein ever in my arm for a blood draw for anything. And so I had that placed. There's always a bandage over it. So no, no matter what, unless you're getting a dressing change, which is like once a week, you can like let it air out as they clean it. And then they swap the bandage and, and replace it, so to say. But the line is always in your arm and there always needs to be something covering it. And so um, in, in my case, the adhesive and I do not get along. And so there was just a lot of issues with, with the, the bandage over it. And so that is why I switched. I had to get that taken out. Um, they can get easily infected. So I got that taken out and I got a port placed, which is a, for the sake of this conversation, because this is all, this all honestly grosses me out. Um, and I'm just like doing this to survive. But so for the sake of this, it's like a little, it's a little bottle screw, little, um, little corkscrew type of thing underneath the skin. And it is, mine is on my right side on my chest. And it is a line from like the collarbone down into my chest, essentially. Um, and it's just a little, it's just a little bottle cap type of thing. And it, it's underneath the skin. And so all you really see is the line from the collarbone down to it. And then um, the little scar underneath and in order for it to be usable, it needs to be accessed. So that is the big difference between a port and a pick is I need someone to poke a needle through my skin in order to get into this guy. And then once the needle is in, 
then there is um, a bandage placed over that. There's like a line kind of connected to that. And then that's able to connect me to any IV. So a port is not an option that you want unless you really don't have any veins. Most most people can get away with a pick. Um, And because of the placement of a port, especially for Lyme patients that are struggling with like jaw pain or neck pain, the placement of a port is rough because it's in the chest, which is, you know, at the end of the day, all connected to the neck and, and the jaw. So unfortunately, there there can be some some pain and some tension. You have something in you, essentially, in your chest. And so it by it, it by far is not is not helping the jaw pain and the neck pain and all of that, but it's needed. Um and then Cleanliness-wise, infection-wise, it is just key, key, key that you have someone that you have a great, great, great nursing agency, essentially, that can take care of it because port infections are really common. They are very, very dangerous. And um, yeah, that's essentially a port. I don't know if you guys have any more questions or if you have any other people. I know- um, Nobody's ever explained the difference between a port and a pick line like that. In fact, I did not even know that you had to- poke the skin with a needle to get to a, a port. So thank you for sharing it in such great detail with us. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think there's like a lot of confusion because so many people are like, oh, so you can just be accessed whenever. And I'm like, no, I need a nurse to poke this. Like I can't just call my mom and ask her to like access this for me so I can just hook myself up. People will say, oh, can you just give your bag yourself a bag of hydration? And I'm like, no, I need a nurse to access this. And so there's things also, um, I'm just sharing this. If anyone has to get a port that listens to this, there's things that make that more uh, more manageable. So there's like lidocaine and things like that. And I feel like these are things that no one really talks about. I had been poked so many times and finally I'm like, I can't take being poked anymore. And they're like, Oh, you can use lidocaine. So there's a lot of little like tidbits that make this, I don't know, not more enjoyable, but more manageable. And they're, I feel like sometimes those, those, those little things are missing and they all add up in the experience. Cause it's not enjoyable to get poked once a week. And, and the lidocaine is a numbing agent, correct? That allows correct. you not to feel yeah, the needle going through. Exactly. And there's so many Lyme patients that are allergic to lidocaine. And so there's other sprays. There's like numbing sprays that are whole, totally like natural and holistic that you can use. So if anyone's listening and they have direct questions, they're more than welcome to contact me. But there's so many things that make it more manageable. So I have a few more questions beyond the, the antibiotics and the, and the port before I hand you back over to Rich. But um, so it sounds like you were doing the antibiotics up until very recently and now you're taking a break, correct? So you have the, you have the port still in and you've been cycling antibiotics up until almost the present date, right? Correct. So we also know that you, you had told us offline that you have also tried ketamine therapy as well. So talk to us about, because it's we've had a lot of mixed feedback. Some people have tried ketamine and they said it was it was not proper for Lyme treatment. It didn't help me, it hurt me and don't do it. Other people have said it's been a game changer. That was the one thing I was missing in my healing journey and they swear by it. So for you, where does that fit in in your healing journey? So it's something, this is my first time really talking about it because it is something that's like, it, it's fairly new to me. And I try to really like vet a system and like a, a way of healing before I'm, I'm like sharing my full experience. But I, um, I've done quite a bit at this point. And I will say that it has been, it has been very helpful. I, I think that's probably the best word that I can use it has been it has been very helpful i i fluctuate because it is not killing lime and so 
part of my rational brain is like, wait, you're not, you're not killing the actual situation here. You're not killing the infection. And so what is this? But because I had so many neurological and, and just brain struggles, it's really helped my brain. I think that if you're struggling neurologically, um, it's, it's a great thing to look into, but I have heard I, I will say I'm the only person that I've heard that has had a positive experience. So I, I, I don't want to put anything into anyone's mind. I think. Well, we've heard others as well, Marco. So there's, there's certainly other people we've interviewed that had a very positive experience with it in their Lyme journey. So you're not alone in that. It's been, it's been amazing for me. I'm really glad to hear that because it's been, it's been so helpful for me. And I think a big portion of it for me is, um, I just recently got a very good understanding of what the therapy is designed for and what it does. Again, I feel like I I did a couple rounds and it was, it was pretty vague and I didn't really fully understand, but, um, for people that are, are thinking of maybe dabbling in, if you have neurological, if you have like brain, brain struggles from Lyme, it's something to look into because what it does essentially from, from a doctor's perspective and from multiple psychiatrists and um, anesthesiologists, what it's doing is basically putting a cast around the brain to help it heal. So if you have a broken arm, you go get a cast, it kind of resets it until you get the cast off. The ketamine is, and you have to work your way up. So especially with Lyme patients, like they start very, very, very small. And you work your way up, it's um, dosed based on kilograms, so how much you weigh. And um, once you work your way up, you start to build the cast, so to say. And the cast is able to wrap around the brain and kind of hold the brain as it starts to rewire and heal. And so... Um, the way, you know, the way that Dr. Feifel, who is one of the OGs of this, this therapy kind of described it to me as it is, it's holding the brain stable while we rewire it. And then we dose it with ketamine to hold, to hold, to hold the stay, to, to keep the cast. So to say, if, if that make, I hope that makes some sense. So it's, it's rewiring your brain, but the cast is allowing it to stay rewired. It's kind of what I'm hearing, right? Correct. And so the theory of going in frequently, the, the dose, the dose and the scheduling is very, very important. And so the scheduling is to keep the cast, so to say, so the cast doesn't start just like a regular cast needs, you know, some some sanitary procedures done every week or so to keep it clean. The the ketamine is 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 that cast once a week to kind of or however often you're going to hold it while the brain reshapes and rewires and and rebuilds itself because the brain is really really pliable and really um elastic. Yes, perfect. <laughs> So, so really it's the timing and dosing is important because although it's rewiring the brain, that can be temporary and it can unravel if you don't do it at the appropriate time and dose to keep it a long-term solution for your, your health. Is that what, what I'm hearing? 
Exactly. And so my hesitation, um, as I'm sure people listening was, you know, is this some temporary thing that I, I'm leaving and I'm not in pain and I'm, I'm happier because Lyme does cause a lot of depression, anxiety, et cetera. And so is this kind of a temporary thing? And my thing was, am I just going to be going here every X amount of days and just kind of dabbling and then feeling good for a couple of days? But the way that, um, the way that I've understood it um, and I've been been told is that it's really it's really giving the brain a a net and a kind of a, a secure holding while it does this rewiring because for me personally I haven't been able to, to quite get the rewiring without some assistance and so this really has been it's been a really big catalyst for me and I, I know f- for me, after a couple sessions, I was like, okay, I, I'm done here. I think we're good. And they described it to me as, you know, we have to work you up very, very, very slow because A, you're, you're sick. You already have all these other things going on. B, we don't, we don't know how your brain responds because it's been through so, so many other things. And ketamine is really, really great for PTSD. They're using it a ton for PTSD. They're also using it a lot for mold exposure. And whether you agree or not, Lyme and the Lyme treatment process is is stressful. It's traumatic. And I didn't quite realize the benefit of ketamine therapy for that purpose alone. I kind of thought, okay, the trauma just like leaves after I leave the doctor's appointment. But it's been really helpful for rewiring that the trauma that I've gone through f- from healing. So I think some important takeaways here is that ketamine therapy can be long lasting if done properly. It helps with medical PTSD essentially is what I'm hearing. But I do wanna ask you a little bit deeper before we go into my final question before handing you back to Rich is, you mentioned the whole rewiring component and you mentioned that you know it helps a lot with anxiety and depression. So what symptoms specifically does this rewiring help? Is it purely psychological with meaning the, the anxiety and depression that are, that are symptoms of Lyme disease? Or does it also help with physical pain as well and other physiological things? Both. And I think that it's, it's a multi-system approach, just like Lyme. So I've, I've, I had already, before I started ketamine completed DNRS, um, with Annie Hopper. And so I had already done that like limbic system retraining. And so to me, it, it was the next step to kind of further enhance that. But I think on a, a chemical level that it is, it's doing both. And it's giving you, the experience itself is not what you're there for. The experience is lovely. You don't feel anything for an hour. la di dee la di da It's a nice little vacation for an hour. But the after effects is what you're after. You want to really gauge is your... Is your depression, is your pain, et cetera, better after that? And they're using it a lot for chronic pain. Now, I don't think the studies are, are great for seeing the long-lasting effects of chronic pain and how it really is, is treating that. But it is able to rewire the – and I'm not a neurologist, but it is, from my understanding, from an anesthesiologist point of view, it's able to rewire that – every time you get a a traumatic experience, so to say. So every time, let's say I go get stuck, it is able to rewire that of, oh, this isn't, this isn't fight or flight mode. I can breathe. I can chill. And so 
I feel like every time you're kind of put in one of those fight or flights, it, it's, its job is to help you get out of the flight and, and the fear. So, so the long-term effects will help you not be triggered by emotional trauma responses, like you said, getting poked or having a doctor's visit after being mistreated for so long or whatever those triggers may be. And there can be thousands of them in Lyme patients. It helps you not respond in a fight or flight manner. And that's a long lasting effect of, of this therapy. Correct. Yeah. And I, I know just for me personally, like I've experienced so much anxiety related to like indecisiveness with Lyme. And for me, it's helped not my decisiveness necessarily, but the anxiety that comes along with making a decision. I know that, okay, if I can't make a decision in like five minutes, I'll try again, but I don't go into this crazy like fear and flight response. You don't get stuck in a loop essentially, which is that, that fight or flight. You're not stuck. Exactly. Which is a lot of DNRS. So it's kind of, you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat. And for me that, that worked, it also created a bit of anxiety, which I've heard from several other people that it it's great, but it's a little bit anxiety provoking DNRS. And so for me, this is kind of just the next catalyst that's helped a lot. And in your experience, has it helped with your chronic pain and has that been long lasting or has that been temporary? So right now it's been temporary and, um, I, I'm very honest. So I actually had the doctor step in my last session, which was very, very recently and just said, I'm in agony when I leave here after 24 hours, what is going on? And he made a very interesting point and said that, you know, obviously with Lyme patients, they have to go very, very slow and increase very, very slowly. And so someone that is getting you know, a quote unquote full dose, you know, where, where you, you work up to several times is getting a lot longer lasting benefit pain wise. But unfortunately we've had to work you up to that dose. I'm not even at that dose where they want to be giving me the, the consistent dose time and time again, I haven't even worked up to that dose. And so he was describing it to me as, you know, once you're at that dose, you're going to be seeing a lot more therapeutic, long lasting events for pain. But until then, we are, I'm, I'm at a spot, you know, where, where I have to hang and I'm really okay with that. And I think that's a huge thing right there is like being okay with the fact that it's going to take longer, but I would rather not be, I mean, this is a drug. I, I don't want to be, and I, I personally am not into um, experimenting with drugs. I, I don't like being like out. I don't like the feeling of being out of control. And so for me, I really appreciate a place that is willing to go slower and, and just gauge me for me. Like I'm not, I'm not a number. Um, and if, if there's people that are listening that are in, interested in, in ketamine therapy, the one thing that I can really say is like really, really, really vet where you're going with your logical mind, but also with your gut. Like that is just my biggest word of advice. And if you have questions, I'm, I'm happy. I have vetted so many people. I'm, I'm happy to talk to whoever, but it's just critical. You're, 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 you're being given anesthesia. So let's talk about timing a little bit. So this is, I, I do have one more question there. So I keep saying that I know, but so let's talk about timing. So do you think that the timing of everything you did is important, meaning the sequence, right? So you did the IVs, then you did the DNRS, then you did the ketamine. Do you think that it was important to address the pathogenic load to then address your mind next? And if you didn't do it in that order, it would have maybe not as been as beneficial to you. And, you know, in general, with all the things you did in your healing journey. Yes. Yes. I was listening to, um, to you to chat with Freddie. Um, and it's so funny because 
as much as I want to say, I just want to, I, I just want to jump to the next thing. And I just want to jump to the next thing. The process is what you're in for. And, and he talks a lot about that, which is why I mentioned him. But as much as I want to expedite it and say, you know what? I can help you. You can go to X, Y, and Z and be healthier so much quicker than this whole long process that it's taken me. It's, it's such a journey and you have, you have to, you have to go about it in your own, in your own way. And I think I've done that with, yeah, with the timing of everything. I think the way that the timing has panned out um, and the treatments that I've done in the order that I have done have, have been to my benefit. So talk to us a little bit about microdosing and how that's been used in your healing journey. Yeah. So um, it's actually really interesting. So Dr. Feifel, who um, actually does the ketamine therapy, he actually is doing a lot of studies with um, psilocybin, which is, um, I guess you can say magic mushrooms. Um, and he's doing a lot of research um, with UCSD with with a lot of just his own clinic. Um, and long, long, long before that, I was just researching a lot with uh, MAPS and just the Psychedelic Association and what kind of the research that they're doing about all of this, all of this brain rewiring and and kind of like the, the, the neurogenesis that happens with psilocybin and, and all, all the all the brain things that happen. Um, and the more and more I researched, the more and more I thought it was really fascinating. Um, and I actually brought it, um, up to Dr. Jess and was given a very big thumbs up. Um, like, like start immediately, like start when you leave here, (laughs) like start as soon as possible. This would be highly beneficial. And um, again, I don't like being out of control. I'm not into doing drugs and I, I never have been. It's one of the reasons I, I don't drink. And so um, I was very, very, very weary. And obviously we are very sensitive humans. And so the first time I attempted to microdose, I did like l- literally like n- not even an eighth of a nail full and it, uh, I didn't feel anything. And um, after a couple times I've gradually increased. Um, and I, this sounds really hippie of me, but I kind of just go, I kind of just go when I feel like it and, and don't, so I'll have like bouts. I'll have like a month where, you know, every two or three days I'll, I'll microdose. And then I'll have months where, where I don't at all. Um, and there's so many different ways to go about it. And there's so many different ways to learn. Um, but personally for me, I've just found the easiest to just like researching the psychedelic association and kind of like what they're doing. They're up in Oakland, California area. They're doing so much research. Um, and yeah, it, it does mess like with your GI system. And so if you're sensitive, if you have like nausea already, which I'm very prone to, um, it's something to kind of, you know, dabble into, but it's, it's been helpful. And for me, what it does is it with this disease, sometimes it gets very micro and all these little tiny, little teeny, teeny, teeny things add up and just drive you insane. And for me, it's given me like a much more macro view of things where I'm able to just zoom out. I feel like I'm kind of, I'm not literally in an airplane, but I feel like I'm in an airplane able to kind of view down the whole, the whole situation. Um, like when, when you're in an airplane, you can just, you know, see, see over everything and see, see what's going on underneath. And I feel like that's kind of what 
microdosing psilocybin has done for me. It kind of just gives me a more macro view of everything going on. And like, this is not all, you know, every single tiny little thing doesn't seem so tiny. So really it's helped you with your perspective and more, more your emotional response to your illness. It sounds like that you've been able to step back and look at it as a whole and not be so overwhelmed by your illness. Yeah. I, yes, I, yes, I I very much think that. And I also think too, mold makes you crazy. And obviously this disease and mold go hand in hand and, you know, mold literally makes you insane. And so (laughs) it's helped from that perspective too, of like calming all of that down a little bit and just taking that from like a 20, you know, when it just feels so out of control and erratic and manic to just bringing it down a little bit more level. And I'm not saying this is like a solution and everyone should just go find some mushrooms and, you know, take a little dibble dab, but and it, it is very, very helpful. And there's also ways to, and I wish I would have known this when I first started, like there's ways you can throw them in like some chocolate and a, it makes it much easier to digest and it's just much more easier to dose. But like dosing is really, really the key and what's up and smaller is always better. And smaller is less is always more in this case so my this is truly my final question and rich is going to pick up after this i promise is i mean your questionnaire that you gave us for this for this interview says that you're 40 percent recovered but i have to tell you i strongly disagree with that number i think that you are being way too hard on yourself i mean we've been talking to you now for over three hours you've given us information that we've never heard before you know you're our 204th guest and you are, you are just brilliant. You are super smart. You, your, your cognitive abilities are, are just amazing. So I just want to hear some positives. So tell us where you are health-wise today and what your plan is moving forward to continue to get even better and better and better. Thank you. Um, it's, it's such a blessing. I, I don't think I'd ever be able to like look at a screen for more than like five minutes um, or talk for more than like two minutes. So this is this is a huge, huge, huge blessing. And I'm, um, I'm so, so, so grateful for what you guys are doing. I don't think like I've been able to express that because it, what you guys are doing is groundbreaking for so many reasons and for, for so many things. But, um, I I just want to give you guys like massive, massive props because this is not being talked about enough. This is a pandemic. I mean, this is out of control and it's out of control in California. I think that's like a huge, you know, a whole separate, separate can of worms, but it is out of control here. I think if I encounter one more person that says, when did you get bitten back East? I'm going to go crazy because it is an, it's an epidemic out here and, and we're not addressing it. So I'm, I'm just so, so, so glad that you guys are addressing this. Um, and, and it's been a joy. Um, as far as right now, thank you. You know, it's funny. I feel like I fluctuate between this, like 40%, 60%, sometimes 2%. Like it's just such a range as anyone on here has gets. Um, but right now life is, you know, it's good. I feel really, really blessed. I'm in a bit of a rut right now because I can't treat, um, from this rash that has just appeared out of nowhere and does not seem to want to go away. So, um, ketamine right now has been very, very beneficial because, you know, I think for anyone on this journey, you like, you have these ebbs and flows. And sometimes when the ebbs hit, it can really do like a number on your mental health. 
Um, because you know, it just feels like you treat and then something else pops up and then you can't treat and you're like, no, but I need to treat because there's this problem. And so, (laughs) um, right now I am, I literally am taking not one thing, which is insane. It's like the first time in four years, I can say I'm not taking one thing. And that is because we're trying to determine what all of these bumps are from. Um, and sometimes and I hope that this is helpful for someone listening, but sometimes even medication that you've been on for a very long time can start to cause a reaction. And so I am on like thyroid medicine from Lyme. Um, Lyme has caused like a lot of thyroid issues for me. And so that medicine is now being compounded um, because sometimes like the pig, the pig issue and thyroid medicine can cause other issues with Lyme patients. And so there's just like so many things to look into. So right now I am literally doing nothing. And, um, I see my Lyme doc very soon and I'm hoping to kind of figure out what is going on from here on out. But day to day wise, I feel very, very blessed. I moved home, um, to my mom's place when I got sick and I am still thankfully in all my crazy Lyme rage and all the crazy Lyme things. Like I'm, st- I'm still allowed to live here and I'm still welcome and I'm still loved. So that is a true mom through and through. <laughs> like any, any Lyme parent knows that the journey is insane and just props to all of the, the parents that are, are hanging. Um, and so life right now is mellow. It's very mellow. Um, I try, I try to do things when I can. Um, I am out of bed and I've been out every day for the, like the past month, which is wild to say. I, I mean, I was completely bed bound for really two years. And so it's really, really magical to just go outside and take a walk for five minutes. Like it's just so, so magical. Um, little things that I just have the utmost appreciation for like going to get a coffee. It's just like amazing. (laughs) Um, so yeah, life right now is, is mellow. I am, I have a lot less symptoms and so I'm, I'm just grateful. It's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, I got a ways to go, but I'm, I'm really happy with, with what I've learned. And this doctor that I currently am seeing is, has been the biggest, biggest blessing for physically, emotionally, everything about my well-being because she she understands that um, she she really values that I'm educated, which is just a breath of fresh air. And so everything is a dialogue. Everything is an asking, not a telling of me that I will do. Everything is you are willing to do this right. Like you are what everything is is a very, very mutual understanding and and ease and grace. And there's no, oh my gosh, you won't do this. How dare you? I I demand that you do this. There's none of that. It's so beautiful. And um, I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact, I will say she's a mom. And I think that is a really beautiful situation. Um, There's just, there's just a level of, of care that I, I just, I haven't experienced. So Margaret, now share with us about and and this has been a beautiful podcast and there's been a lot of beauty here, which is, I want you to know, uh, really a unique experience for us, but talk to us about the beauty of Lyme in more detail and what you learned about yourself and your purpose that you do not believe you would have learned had you not gone on the Lyme disease journey. Yeah. So it's interesting. So 
obviously before this, we were talking about how the, like, it's crazy to think that the epiphany of all of this is being diagnosed with Lyme. Like, it's really mind boggling to me at the end of the day that that's kind of what this has come down to. But for me, I think there's so many things and I mentioned this briefly, but I think there's so many things in life that we know that we don't know. And then there's this whole slew of things that we don't know that we don't know. And so just like taking that in for a second and realizing that there's so many things that we don't even know exist that we don't know. (laughs) And for me, that is this, like, I didn't, I didn't know anything like this existed. I also didn't know that any, any illness could cause so many things. I've always heard my whole life, everything is connected. It sounds like a woo-woo fairy tale. Everything is connected. The body is always listening. And it's like very, very woo-woo-y. But it is so, so, so true. I mean, it's mind-boggling to me how much the nervous system and just like how much the limbic system and the vagal nerve and like all of this relates to this disease. It's it's mind-blowing to me. And so there's so many things that I didn't know that I've I've learned. There's so many things that I had no idea even existed. And I think that's really the beauty is like learning that I would have never, ever, ever known how many people struggle that are just invisibly sick. I mean, and it's, you know, I walk into my doctor's office and it's, it's all women my age. They're all, you know, typically under 30 and they're all women and they've all graduated college for the most part. And they're all sick, sick, sick. And, but they look great. Right. And so like that, that's just the crazy thing about this disease is it's, you know, it really is obviously the great, the great imitator for a reason. And it, it just presents this facade of like, everything is perfect. And I, it's so interesting too, because going back, it's like, you think about, I know for me, I've had like kind of a type A, like get shit done kind of personality. And that is so many, you know, so many of these women are, you know, A students through college, bam, 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 do, 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 do. And then it's like this is just a wipeout and you can't, you literally cannot do anything. And so you go from my worth is in achieving, my worth is in making money, my worth is in learning, 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 my worth is in like being whatever, I'm, I'm, a mom cleaning, cooking, whatever that is to like your worth is laying in bed. And like, now do you feel worthy? And like coming to terms with the fact that like you're worthy of being, of being healthy, of getting help. Like you did not put this upon yourself by any means. And so I think there's just a lot right there of just like realizing that there's so much that you're going to learn And I have always wanted, I've always, you know, kind of strived to not be the smartest person in the room. I don't really think that there's much benefit to being the most intelligent person in the room. Like I always want to learn from others. And so really just being a constant student and especially with this disease is, has, has made the process, I would say a lot easier because I I constantly want to learn um, if I'm given antibiotics, like I, I want to learn why there needs to be two put together, why you can't take one and then you can take the, like, I just constantly want to learn. And I think that, I think that obviously was in me before this, but that has just been magnified and, and I'm grateful. Like it's, it's taken me a while to get there, but I'm, I'm very, very grateful. 
So you gave a shout out to Lyme parents before and specifically your mom. And we've seen from your social media that you're often uh, praising your mom for being such a good woman and putting up with all of your craziness. So uh, if God forbid your mom, who was uh, who actually just walked on screen a minute ago um, after this podcast, walked over to you and showed you that she was being bitten by a tick, what would you recommend that she do so that she wouldn't have to go on the challenging chronic Lyme disease journey that you've been on? So immediately, obviously, there's like a whole procedure for removing a tick. So I would go through that whole process and procedure with like the adequate tweezers and that whole shebang. Um, and I, for people that are more curious, which is it's very, very important to know. Um, doc, there's so many doctors that have so many, so much information on on that specifically. But um, that was that would be the first thing and then get it tested um, immediately. And then I would immediately give her my doctor (laughs) to to be very honest. Um, I would make her see Dr. Lehman that, that second, literally, um, you know, the, the quicker, the quicker, the better with it, with this disease and the, the faster the treatment, the better the, the results ideally. Um, because, we know that obviously one tick is not just carrying Lyme. They carry co-infections and everything else. And those are what is killer, obviously. And so, um, yeah, so I would immediately, I would immediately send her, her there. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with our guest, Margot Gunning. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Margot Gunning, please visit our Instagram page at Margot Gunning. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank our community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.